Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Moriarty, the top loader. Dagan, <laughs> the top loading version of Dagan Moriarty here with us today. How are you today, my friend? Good to see you. And sometimes the bottom loader. Oh, boy. <laughs> Power bottom. You said that's correct. Mm-mm. That is correct, my friend. Mm. Yeah. Fighting the good fight. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Uh, what's fighting the bad fight? I don't know. I don't think you want to know that. <laughs> that you know what I think of that as like that's Cobra, that's the Decepticons, mm-hmm. that's the Empire. They're fighting the, the bad fight. They're fighting the bad fight, right? Right? We're Though fighting the good fight. The Empire thinks that they're fighting the good fight. Mm, don't get tricky on me now. Yeah. I know, I know you're getting very cerebral already. Yeah, that's all right. How are you doing? Now let me ask you this. Hmm. Did you guys get any snow down there? No, it hasn't snowed in Nothing? two years here, really. I mean it's we there not this time around, but that we only got like a a, a, a dusting mm. one time, but not even no, it rained here. Yeah. Okay. See this. These are the differences I like to celebrate between Pennsylvania and Virginia. It, this is the way it should be. You guys shouldn't have any snow right now. We just got a foot last night. No, we no, haven't had a we haven't had might snow. Be exaggerating ten inches, maybe. We haven't had snow down here in, in a spell or two. Yeah. <laughs> I uh ten you got ten in, that that's like you to say it's a foot and then you say well it's ten inches. yeah 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 that's yeah. very yeah it's, this nice. all feeds back into the bottom yeah. you know yeah. this, this full circle the power bottom power bottom all right Dave by the way you really fucked up that mini game you did try to do last last oh last week. I'm glad you bring that up well I'm not glad you bring that aspect of it up but I I have been telling people that I really want to redeem my, I think it's fun that segment but i also want to redeem myself because yeah i really fucked up the scoring on it so i wanted to let our listeners know there's going to be a return to wanted dead or alive and you know what's crazy about it man since i started planning the inception of that first game all of these celebrities have been coming up just in listening to youtube and reading various things there's a lot of people out there that i think there's some confusion of like there's a lot of people i'm surprised that are alive and there's a lot of people that you'd be surprised that have passed away. Yes, 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 yes. This game could go on for forever. No, that, it's, we're a, it's do a, one more. It's a great, it's a great idea actually, because I really earnestly don't know, and you even know who the people are and what they're famous for. But it's like, has this person just gone away, or did they die? I I go to Wikipedia all the time, or just Google, and you go to Wikipedia, and I always look for that beginning where it says their name, and then it's like Is their their what? dates. And if you just see that one date, you're like, okay. <laughs> You know, you don't just look at the is or was. Oh, that's 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 a good thing, too. But it's it's just yeah. like, but it'll no, we'll just say because that's even before that, because it'll say oh, the name right, up there and then the, the uh, birth, the birth date and then the is or was. So I'm actually getting. But yeah, no, that that is. And people are on that like that. You know what? Oh, let yeah. Me, let me say something about Wikipedia real quick. So good. People have tried to. I don't know who they, the, the people have been, but like over time, I've, I've gotten a Wikipedia page and then it's been removed. But here's the thing, because I'm not like notable enough, which I understand. OK, so I accept that. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but let me let me follow this through to the to the to the logical conclusion. I'm not notable enough for Wikipedia. OK. I just why does Wikipedia okay. cite me 5000 times? Like you go to like any video game PlayStation game thing and, and I'm cited on it. I'm cited on the last of us web thing over and over again. I'm cited on all of the I find citations for myself on Wikipedia all of the time. Oh, I'm sure. So I'm notable enough to be cited by Wikipedia. But when when they want to give me a, a page, it's like no, 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 no. He's notable enough to be to be 
cited. Yeah, that's not fair. In the encyclopedia. But he can't have his own page in the encyclopedia. Last Stand's not notable enough to have its own page. Lilymo has its own page, but it's it's been up for deletion for like two years. And no one just no one's deleted it. Oh, and I'm like, and, and no I'm like, updating? we've made five or we're on our sixth game and we're not notable enough to have a Wikipedia page. Like it's all nonsense. And I, I, it's political, but it's I don't think it's like oh, it le- left versus right political. It's just a there, there's an underpinning in Wikipedia of power brokers that make all the decisions like the editors I didn't know this and you have to be cool and with it like I've 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 all the way back to kind of funny and IGN I've been bitching about this is there's a page of Northeastern University notable alumni and I was on that and then they removed me from that and it's no. like dude I'm not even that. being a dickhead there's a lot of famous people that went there no doubt about it by the way Northeastern just won the bean pot shout out that's the, the what Boston. is that that's the annual hockey tournament in Boston between Northeastern, Boston University, Boston College, and Harvard. They play oh, every I didn't it, know this It's a tradition. Good. It's like a very long lasting tradition. That's um, awesome. And so they just won that last night. Um, what was I saying? What were we talking about? You were going on the politics of Wikipedia. Oh, right. Wikipedia. Oh, right. So Northeastern, the, 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 that's right. The, uh, the notable world. alumni. But I scroll through that. There are famous people that went there, no doubt. But I scroll through it. It's hundreds of names. And I'm like, I'm more famous than fucking almost all of these people. What what are you kidding? (laughs) Like, I am an E-list internet celebrity. And I am more famous than all of these people. What is this bullshit? We got to get it going again. We got to get calm. We on it. The problem is, is I understand it. The problem is, is that not enough. We don't have enough external citations of people talking about us or interviewing us or writing about us or... So there's nothing to cite. I understand that. I see that point. But that is in and of itself an example of how media and press ignoring things and pretending they don't exist has ramifications on things in the future. You know, like that. how it's like, OK, so even though we're huge yep. by crowdfunding standards, we are ignored by all of our peers, which is fine. But because of that, we don't get you know, a Wikipedia page on the, on the eternal of. encyclopedia. Yeah, that's see, I think they should develop some sort of algorithm where if you're, you know, if you have 25 or more citations, let's say automatically you should get, have your own page. However, however small. I'm probably then, cited 25 times on the Naughty Dog page. I'm not, <laughs> not, so, yeah, that's not that's not. No, let me ask you this question about Wikipedia, because mm. that's a tool that we definitely use. Oh, yeah, I love Wikipedia. I, I read Wikipedia all the time. Constantly, right? Mm -hmm. But they do a very sort of national public radio type model where they ask for money once in a while. Oh yeah, I just ignore that. Here's the here's the the day where you're supposed to pledge, Mm -hmm. and they make it so you have to scroll. Like if you're on the on the phone version, like like, all right, all right, Jimmy Wales, get the fuck out of here. I'm not giving you any money because you're so partisan. I can't. Maybe later. It's very. It's a wonderful. So Wikipedia is very useful. I like reading it. It's always it's if you know things about things, it's often wrong. It's incredibly partisan and biased. And that's why I don't. But but it is useful. My whole my whole thing is that people should just like I love using Wikipedia, but I always like going to the citations and then clicking off from there and seeing where things go, because I noted I don't know if I I talked about it on this show, but back when I did Collins last stand, I did this. um, Did I say this already? I did this uh, this video about a moon base that the United States was going to build in the 50s. I don't know if you told me that. And it was called Project. God, I don't remember it. It, it, My video, it was one of my favorite videos that I did. There's this project basically in the 1950s that that was on, you know, declassified a few years ago about how not a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago now about 
how the United States was going to build this moon base in the 50s. And they contracted the army and like all these contractors to figure out how to build the moon base. And it's all the information about it is from this one declassified document. And in doing the video and really researching it, I realized that there was all sorts of stuff on the Wikipedia page about it. That's not true. Like just straight up made up, like not true, not in the report. And that's the kind of shit you only realize if you go into the sources. So you got to be yeah, careful on there because like, it is very useful, but it's biased as fuck. You know, see, I get I get guilty for I have maybe latered Wikipedia to death. But it's like one of those things. It's such a sin, but it's one of those things was like, if I could get it for free and it's the same level, it's not like Wikipedia Red or Wikipedia Premium. It's, it's just Wikipedia. But here's the thing about that. It's because it, that's what, kind of where I guess where I'm getting is that if you had a really neutral service that was totally like Encyclopedia Britannica level, mm-hmm. but was like everything incorporated, I would give that. I would subscribe to something like that if I thought it was fair. But I know that it's not. Everyone knows that. And it's not unlike, you know, lots of other services in some sense that are similar in nature just in terms of their bias and or their their destructiveness towards your life. So I think of something like Twitter. I'm on Twitter every day reading it, and but I don't really post on it, but I'm never going to pay for it. Like that's an that's a non-starter. Like I'm not paying yeah. for Twitter. I'm not paying. Never. I, I think uh, Last Stand might have paid for the blue check. I'm not even sure. I don't know because that's up to Ben. But from my personal account, it's like no way. Um, I'm not paying for something so manifestly bad for me. What does um, the blue check get you? Visibility? Better I visibility? Think, well, I used to have the blue check, and that was like a different era. And that that was like when you had to be given it by Twitter. You were earned. You earned. Well, that. yeah. I mean, if you want to call it that, right? And. <laughs> Now it's yeah, I think it, it helps visibility and like algorithmically you I think see fewer ads, you can post longer videos uh, and so on and so forth. Longer so video, longer posts as well. Does yeah, longer posts, which I'm not crazy about the long Twitter posts. That's not what Twitter is. I some people, especially in politics, post these things and they have subscribers on there and stuff. It's cool, but they post yeah. like a thousand words. But dude, I'm not reading that. Like there's just no way I'm reading that That's on Twitter. I'll read that somewhere point. else, maybe. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if he's listening yeah. or not. I won't say his name, but. You know, every once in a while, I correspond with people via email. Yeah. And this dude emailed me and so or DM'd me on pay, Patreon. So I was like, oh, yeah, email me or whatever. And then he emailed me a 20, I think it was 2200 word email. And I, email, I emailed him back <laughs> and I'm like. That is I, I, I think I wrote something like sending a person an unprompted 2000 plus word email is insane, figuratively, not rid- literally. But thank you for reaching out. And then he responded with something like, he's like, you're right. I got carried away or something like that. I'm like, yeah, dude, talk, like, what do you think? I'm going right, to so read, I'm gonna read your novella here. Like, I don't even want to read stop. anyone's emails of people that I that send them to me that I know. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Gotta be. That brevity thing is no, but that is the point of Twitter, right? That's the charm. Like, that's the art form. You get to you have to say what you have to say with a limit. That limit is, you know, fitting your your word count into that limit. I think it's good for us anyway. You know that brevity thing, and just respect people's time. And- that's why we yeah, do four-hour gets- podcasts. <laughs> yeah, right. It's exactly right. Well, it, it, there is. It's funny because that kid guy's email was so long that I copied and pasted it into Google Docs to see how many words it was. I was wow. like, "This has got to be the longest email I've ever received in my life." How long is this email, it, dude? It was literally laid out with like subsections, like one Roman numeral one. Like, I was like, I don't know what we aren't this familiar yet. We're not like 
you're not my professor or something, are you? You're not sending me the outline for a class that I'm still taking. Wow. That's, in, that's pretty crazy. Do you I have any the, idea what it was about? Not really, no. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you never even got down deep enough. I that, can scroll. It was, I'm trying to remember what the nature of it even was. Like he's it's something about the business of games, which is interesting, but come on, man. I'm not on. And that's the point. I'm not on Substack when I'm on Twitter. I don't want to. I go to Substack or things like that to read the written word. And that's good shit. But on Twitter, it's got to be an, an, an it's got to be memes. It's got to be videos. It's got to be fucking stupid gifts and, you know, a few hundred words. Bite sized. Yeah. Bite sized. Yeah. Well, you elicit enthusiasm. Say that for yourself. Give yourself a pat on the back. I mean, that's not the first time I say I've I've elicited enthusiasm many times in my life. So um, (laughs) now, Dave, I wanted to do a a show quick and easy today, although maybe it won't be so quick. I don't know. Um, We were banding around things to do. We're going to get into a specific game next episode. So we're kind of working our way through that still. And in the meantime, we just did a film. So I was like, what, what could we do? We did a, a kind of a nostalgic one recently. We did an episode with our mom recently. So I was like, all right, what's a little different? We haven't, I'm not crazy about lists and listicle kind of things and mm. list videos. However, I thought this would be a fun exercise because we, we so rarely do this sort of thing of if we could come up with the 10 best NES games or what we would consider. And I kind of want to put a little something on it, a little spin on it, which is the best 10 NES games that you think represent a breadth of experiences. And the reason I say that is because it would be very easy for me to put five of six Mega Man games on the top 10 list. Sure. Two or three Castlevania games and have almost no room left for anything else. I don't mind revisiting a franchise once or twice in the list, but I just wanted to be clear about that, that I don't think it's my fate. This list would be my favorite or the best total because i feel like that would be dominated by very specific games for me so instead i was like well what is like a good if you were to say like these are the 10 games everyone should play on nes right these are the 10 best games across a a variance or a gamut of experiences and what i thought would be interesting dig is if we presented and went back and forth and tried to present the games so that there were no conflicts so like a game you think is on my list and a game that is on your list or vice versa to okay. see how far we can get into the list before there's any conflict. Oh, interesting. About it at all. Because I bet okay. you we may be able to get like eight deep, maybe, without having any conflict. Don't you think? I, I'll tell you what. It was hard to put together a, a list of 10, even curating it specifically similarly to the way you did yours, I think, where it was just about fun and what I love to play. Yeah, not but about there important. There are a lot certainly. of runners up. Right. So there are if I if I knew I was putting the list together like that, I could probably I could definitely put a list of 10 games that I think are great that you wouldn't have picked. But that overlap is the interesting bit, though. You know how um, let me tell you how I curated it, because. This is how I thought of it. First of all, there's a couple of I think there's a couple of. A couple of rules that people should know. This is North American. NES as Colin and I grew up with it. So we're not talking about European. We're not talking about the Famicom, which Famicom is separately and distinctly like I collect for the Japanese Famicom family computer. I'm very proud of that collection, but this is specifically North American games. And, you know, out of a body of nearly 700 licensed games, then you tack on the 94 unlicensed games, you got nearly 800 games. There's a lot there to consider. But what I, the way I did it, Kyle, and we've talked about this when we've talked. Bible Adventure. 
Pie pool adventures. Those baby blue cards. Number one. And who knows? Maybe an unlicensed game pops up in the conversation. But the way I look at it is, and you and I have talked about retro games like this before, it's not what's generally considered, including what I consider the best in insofar as technical achievements or the biggest or the greatest sort of for the 8-bit era or pushing the, the system to its limits. It was really more about if I had a friend buying an NES now, what 10 games would I recommend that I think are just superior in terms of fun? So again, not mm-hmm. the technical wizardry, mm-hmm. not necessarily the out-and-out quality, but just something that I do think is great, but something that I just think is really fun to play and I think replay value takes a big part of that too. So that's the way I put my list together. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what kind of overlap because yeah, like I, wanna... I said, there's probably a list of 40 runners up that I could systematically plug in anywhere on this list of top 10 that could take the place of what I ended up eventually going. Yeah, I think we should be able to, I think that we'll be able to successfully fuse our lists into a single top 10. But that's that's going to be my goal here. Oh, that's fun. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, let's go back and forth and present games that we were most confident would be on the list for the other person, too. Okay. Because I think that that would be very valuable. And then we can keep track of our list separately, too. Um, just because I think that there's not going to be that much tension there. It reminds me of the. Uh, in 2000. God, when was it? it? Must have been 2008 or something. 2009. We did top 100 NES games at. IGN and that list is still there. I, I went and looked for it. It's, it actually comes up when you look for best NES games. It just it's the first thing. And it's funny, a lot of my things that I wrote are in there still. And I remember that experience so well because we kind of spoofed the list in a way because it would have been so top heavy. I, I remember I remember being in the room making the argument like I'm like, we certainly all understand straight up that if you took the top 25 NES games, five of them are Mega Man games. Like that, you know, like three of them are Castlevania games. Three of them are Mario games. Two of them are Zelda games. Yeah. Three of them are Ninja Gaiden games. Right. You And and we all realized we were like, we kind of have to just split them up. Like you got it. And I remember that being like, this sucks because it's almost insane where some of these games are on the list. I, I remember being like Mega Man 5 was like in the 80s or I'm like, that's so comical. That's right. It's probably really in the teens. Right. We don't want to look corny as fuck. I'm kind of trying to keep that energy here, too, because, again, the list. I'll just tell you, my list would be something like the, my top five NES games would be something like Mega Man three, five, six, four, two. So that's yeah. not the way I'm going to present the, right. the list here. All right. No, I know what you're saying. There's there's so many ways to put this list together. Right. So in other words, too, I think variety like curating an experience over the body of those 10 games because yeah, Mega Man one through six. I mean, that could be, that could be the, you know, two thirds of your top 10. It it probably in a lot of ways could be, or should be. So you're really trying to curate an overall experience and say, all right, if I had 10 games on my shelf, what would I like to get a, a little taste of everything? That's, that was another kind of side thought that I had in putting this together was like, I don't want to. I don't want to repeat an experience. Although it looks like my list has a lot of platformers, but well, that is what the the NES is. First of all, it's it so well. fucking quaint how few games are on NES. It's like 
how are there so few games on it? It's incredible. Like how many units, the how many consoles were sold per individual game on the market has got to be the biggest difference. And that would actually be interesting math to do. Cause I bet you there, that is true. I mean that for instance, uh, 15,000 games came to steam last year. So that's insane. So, I mean, it's absurd. I mean, it's, it's fucking stupid. Uh, the, the quicker they get these walled gardens cleaned up, the better I would be clipping and oh my God, I'd be nipping and tucking all over the place. If, so, <laughs> if Sony gave me the, uh, the keys to do that. All right, Dave, I'll get this going. And again, no least amount of tension. This is a game that I think will be on your list. And so it's on my okay. list here too, as well. And I'll put it on the master list. Safest bet. Mario three. Mm. Yeah. No, it's not on my list. I know we and what? we've argued about that and, and we've argued about this game before. I, I don't even understand. I know. OK, it's, it, listen, it's polarizing. It's a, this is a divisive dig and take, but it's definitely, you know, in my list of runner ups, it's it's definitely in the top. You have to put it in the top 20 no matter what. But it's not a game I found myself returning to over and over again. And like we've mentioned in the past, I don't know how long ago, a big part of that was growing up with it. The game is very demanding and taxing in terms of it's it's laborious in terms of hours spent and you could not save the game. And that really put me off. It's probably technically in insofar as quality and squeezing quality into every pixel graphics, the levels conceptually building a franchise you know all the crazy how influential it was it's probably the best game on the nes and but again i don't know if it's one for one in terms of technical wizardry and an instant classic and just being fun like the fun factor there is just missing from for me for that from that game for a little bit. I know it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's, really it's super weird. weird. I'm almost I'm almost going back on my idea now. We can't if you don't if we don't agree on this game being there, then we can't fuse our list. There, there's no way our lists are going to be similar. No, I think this one is a I think this one is kind of a one off. I think this one is problematic for me because to me, it's I, almost like I would have bet everything I had on that being on like obviously on the list. You know. Yeah, no, I can't have that. If we're just talking about 10 games, I can't have that on the list. That's that's a strange because <laughs> what's funny is that I have two Mario games on my list and that's still, you know, that's still there. Yeah, because because I think they're distinct enough to have more than two. Like the Mega Man games are not distinct enough from each other. There are really only two franchises, three, let's say three Mario, Zelda, Castlevania, probably are the only three franchises with sequels that matter on NES where they would be different, differentiated enough for me to include them on this particular list in the fairness of breath, you know, well, give me top 10 and I'll give you my top 10 and then we could. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. That's fine. This, is this one, I'm two, interested. three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. Yeah. So this is, I actually only had 13 games total because I was, I was approaching it from the specific lens of what would be the most dynamic list of games that, that people could play. And there are games I had to leave off. Like I left, there's no dragon warrior games on my list, for instance. Okay. Right. No Final Fantasy one, mm. nothing like that. It didn't make money. certainly like no Vaxanadu or Rygar or random things like that. Like I'm not going to put those games on Legacy there. the Wizard. Right. Precisely. I love uh, that game. But well, yeah, which is cool. Um, So here. All right. So I'll give you my list. Let's do it that way. Okay. And this isn't an actual is this kind, it kind of is in order, I guess, but. But not really. All right. 
Mario 3, Mega Man 2, Castlevania 3, Ninja Gaiden, Mario 2, Zelda, Kid Icarus, DuckTales, Metroid, Punch-Out. So that was the that was the what I thought would be like the quintessential 10 NES games. I could have picked all those. I'm I'm surprised that DuckTales made your list. That's the only one that surprises me a little bit. I know you like that game, but I, I'm surprised it makes it that far up. But yeah, that's the only one that surprises me. I know your taste. You have a very specific taste Indeed. in NES. And yeah. the three that I had is kind of like should they, could they, would they is Contra, Mega Man 3, Castlevania 2. I think a 14th game would have been Zelda 2, but I knew that that wasn't going to sneak in. There was just too competitive. That's what's so difficult about these exercises is really limiting it to 10 and just limiting it to 10. It's very difficult. It's so hard. So that's that's the list I thought of as quintessential. All right. So like present to me your list. I'll write your list down and then we'll have them both to compare and contrast here. Okay. now I literally have 30 games that could be slid in for any of these. There's 30 games that I consider so great that they could have easily made this list. The other thing, I have a little disclaimer list here, Kyle. I have a small list of games that I recognize as probably being wonderful, but I have spent little or no time with them. And some of them I own and some of them I don't own. I only have about 200 NES games. It's not like I have a vast collection. And those games are Maniac Mansion, I just never spent a lot of time with that game. That's a port too, so I don't know that people would care. That about is a port. It. Yeah. That is a port. I see it slip into a lot of people's top 20 lists. I'm not sure it's top 10 status, but I know it's a game that I would, it seems very fun and inventive, and I, I know I would like it, but I just never spent any serious time with it. River City Ransom mm. and the all the other Kunio Kun games, volleyball, soccer, I spent precious little time with any of those games. And I think they're one. It's the only one I spent time with was Renegade, and I hated that game. But I understand Renegade is like the redheaded stepchild of the Kunio Kun games. River City Ransom specifically seems so wonderful, but for whatever reason, I just never jumped into that world. Arc System owns all those games now, which is awesome. And they're they're oh, they do. Yeah, and the they are bringing. Well, did you have you played River City Girls? I mean, that that shit's fucking. I dope, never dude. play. I never played that. Oh, you'd love it. I haven't Gene played the sequel. I haven't played the sequel, sequel yet, but it's for people that don't know, it's a brawler, like an RPG brawler, and it's really good, but it's about like schoolgirls that are going and saving their boyfriends who have been kidnapped from so good. I by love like these that. thugs or whatever. It's beautifully done. It's awesome. I was really, really smitten with it. I thought it was very cute. Yeah, they've done a really nice job. Technos, that old company, like that. Yeah. That yeah, we didn't know how I I why well, I want to say we. I certainly didn't know how broad Kunio Kun was until there was a wasn't there a Kunio Kun game around the launch of Game Boy Advance? And that I think is when I looked into it and you realize there were all these games that never even came out here yeah. and stuff like that. And and the connections to because we really we brawlers are so fun and oh God, there's a bunch so of them that that never came out or were never ported and or they were ported poorly. Like we had the shitty double dragon ports and yeah, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. And the, so, yeah, the, the, I missed that whole, the whole Kunio Kun world is still, it's still my oyster, but I, I haven't really jumped in. Mm. And then uh, Gremlins 2, Sunsoft's Gremlins 2, and uh, Totally Rad and Wacky Races, which is way too expensive for me. I'll never buy that game, but um, those games look really fun. 
But I, I so I, I have no sort of connection to those games, so they can't be on the list because I just never spent. Well, let me let me understand this. You're not going to present yeah. to me all 30 games, are you? Like you've narrowed no, this down no, to no. 10. I okay. won't tell you that list. Yeah, oh, I, I would like to know the rest of those games, but I, I want to make sure you have it down to 10. So those, but the ones you just named are the ones that didn't even make the 30. Right? No, the, okay. these are the ones I just named are just games I really never played, or or I played them once, or I played them in passing. So I could, they can't possibly be on the list. My other list of 30, those may come up in conversation, but I'm sure they will, you know, at least some of them, but no, my, so my top 10, and I like how you, you referring to this list as dynamic. I think I was trying to put together an experience over these Mm. games and that's why certain ones are missing. It's also a reason why certain ones maybe should be slotted in, but I just had to go, you know what it is? This is my pop and play list, Kyle. These are the games as a kid. Or even now, I would still gladly put in and play just because they're my personal favorites. In that, I do think all of, I stand behind all of these games being great games, but these are just my, these are the pick of the litter. These are Chef Kiss Dagan's games that just really kind of, I connected with the most. All right. Ninja Gaiden. Mm. The first one, although the second and third one, that that game is just a masterclass in evolving a franchise, but the first one is just speaks to my heart. So Ninja Gaiden one, you guys that know me will know the second one, Super Mario Brothers two. That's my Super Mario Brothers game. I love that game. I have a soft spot for that game. Contra, mm-hmm. Konami's classic. Life Force is the mm-hmm. other Konami game I have to have on there. The space shooter. The only other wait. Like, the only other Konami game. The other, only other Konami game on my list? Yeah. Those no, are, I have, there's... Oh, I thought that's what you said. I'm sorry, that the only other... other. I have at least one other Konami Okay, I was going to say, I hope so. Yeah, I have one other Konami <laughs> game. <laughs> or I don't know if we can be brothers for much longer. Life Force is an interesting one, man, because when I think about why it's held up so much, I know it's spun off the Gradius series. That whole thing gets very confusing if you see the cross-pollination between the Japanese versions of these games and the stuff that we got in North America. but. When you talk about what we learned about space shoot 'em ups and shmups, and then crossing over into the bullet hell shooters, which probably our type was the first one that really made it onto our radar. What a name! We all agreed right. with that with Gene. It's right. like what a name of a game. Our type is such a good name. Such oh my a great god! Franchise. I wish I could have thought of a name as good as our type. But Life Force is a more choreographed game. Oh, it's definitely. difficult, but it's. I think what makes it so replayable and so fun and fluid is that it's it's a much more choreographed experience. Difficult, but you could acclimate to it over time. And I think that's why the Konami games like Life Force and Jackal and Contra are so good. Metal Storm. Metal that, Storm. That's probably the, hmm. It's probably the only game that made my list because the technical wizardry and the gimmick of reversing gravity is just irresistible. Yeah, it's good I, shit. Just, that game is so good. And you know what? One of the great games, one of the later games came out maybe six months before the Super Nintendo in North America. But what's charming about Metal Storm, I was just playing it the other day. It's a little broken. Like every Nintendo game, it's it's one of the great games. It's still a little bit broken. And that's the charm of the NES era, specifically with Metal Storm. The sound effects intercede with the background music sometimes. It gets there's some sort of glitch with the background music dropping out when certain sound effects play in tandem 
which is interesting. I love that even the best games are a little broken. That's yeah. that's just that's just part of the love. Metal Storm the was not a game I played until later, until later mm. in the '90s, like the eBay era. Sure. I remember the box art, and I went and looked it up because I I remember that it's Irem, and oh, yeah. I, which is the publisher. But I remember the the mech, like it's very Japanese in, in its in its American kind of form. It's really cool. You know, the yeah, North American very box fashion artist. forward. Yeah, it's like you didn't see mech design like that unless you were really tuned into OAV animation. You know what I mean? Like unless you were really immersed in, they called it, regrettably, they called it Jap animation back then. But yeah, what is it? The M three hundred eight Gunner Mech, which is which is so cool. We didn't even realize there was probably a bunch of American kids running around thinking that was a robot, not like a piloted mech, like everybody would recognize later on in anime. I'm surprised that this. Uh, I, I I like Metal Storm a lot, but I am very surprised that you uh, had this on your list. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one for me because, and I think you know that's probably unfairly a little dagster directed because of the manga anime influence sure. that it was really you know you just didn't see things like that back then so it was early he was on the cutting edge with that um batman yeah okay. put batman the video game in there sunsoft's sure. masterpiece i would say on the oh, NES. Yeah. um and will we let me ask you a question will we get more down into detailing each of these well yeah we can talk about any of them in in detail all we want batman was one that i was thinking of too but like the thing about batman is because Batman is fucking awesome. For people that don't know, the best Batman game ever made is probably Sunsoft's Batman. I mean, when you really compare them like pound for pound with obviously Arkham Asylum is dope and people love Arkham City and all the rest of Arkham Knight. But Batman was so good and Sunsoft was just such a good publisher uh, and shepherd of, of talent. You know, Journey to Silius is a game that oh, I have a real like soft it. spot for. And that's, but the thing about Batman is that it, it, there's just so, there's not much room on a top 10 list. Like it's got to be dominated by at least half of them are going to be Nintendo games, published games. And then you have this star studded cast of third party games. And yeah. it's like, I don't know that Batman sneaks into that list for me, but it's, it's okay. certainly, I mean, it's, I mean, it's an all time game. It's so memorable too. Cause I remember you and I renting it and, and we were obsessed with it. It was like, it was kind of like, wow, this is kind of like Mega Man-esque or Castlevania-esque or something. This is like, like a, usually it's so funny because when you were playing side scrollers, which were playing so many of them, there was such a, a drop off once you left that Capcom, Konami, Nintendo ecosystem. Yeah. It was like everything sucked or just a lot of things sucked. So when it's something so like Ninja Gaiden snuck up or something, it was awesome. And then Batman was just another one of those games or Sunsoft's games, generally speaking were those games, you know, because I have I have a soft spot for some other stuff too, like uh, Fester's Quest and stuff, which I know a lot of sure. people don't like, but yeah, but Sunsoft really was that developer that was just below the Capcoms and the Konamis and everything like that. They were just you, you started to recognize you were going to get something special with that name and not get burned at the video store. This was a rental for us where it was like we got burned on so many games, especially so many licensed games. That's the other thing. Like this was one of the earlier licensed games that was actually good. You know, Fester's Quest, I think of Silius, like you said, Blaster Master was another mm -hmm. one, um, which is a great game and definitely in that list of 30 for me. But this game, the music, the atmosphere, the graphics, but you know what was special about this game and why I remember it and why I still love to play it? The control was so nuanced 
It was unusually nuanced. It was really it not only was the were the sprites beautifully animated, but there was so much minute pixel perfect detail to con- to the control of clinging to the walls and hovering there for a moment. It was really beautifully designed in tandem with the level designs and to like again that the pixel perfect nature of the platforming and the way the game was really designed around that was a masterclass in, in platforming game design, the 8-bit era. It couldn't have been any better. It, re- it was so polished of an experience and also difficult. But the fact that it was so difficult, but that you could respond to it by just being good at it because it lets you, it lets you have a, a modicum of control that was different than, let's say, another great game that I'm going to mention like Castlevania where the controls are much more broad, right? You you kind of jump and you can't reverse yourself in the air, that type of thing. This is the opposite of that. You have a lot of control over it, an unusual amount of control for an 8-bit game. And that's why I come back to it. You know, it looks beautiful. It's, you know, a combination of the atmosphere and the music and the, you know, of course the beautiful pixel art. But yeah, that that that's why this game makes a list for me. It's like that it's it's shockingly good. For that era, which is so cool. Yeah, I thought Batman um, had a, uh, a, a almost a Ninja Gaiden like storytelling aesthetic too, like not not literally pound for pound, but just the darkness and the portrayal of the environments. Like it felt so much deeper than just being a Batman game. Uh, that's yeah. what I, I remember being. I remember it just really. I remember filling my imagination in, in an interesting way when I was a kid, compared to a lot cut of other scenes. Games. Right, that's exactly cut, right. Yeah, right. So, had the cutscenes. Mm-hmm. It had. It was a very dramatic presentation, loosely based on '89 Batman, but you know, it, you it got a dark, a little bit of a darker flavor than the film. So yeah, that's that's one for me. And then this one, this one's funny for me. I really kind of struggled with this one, but ultimately, it had to make the cut, and that's Tetris. Hmm. Now the Nintendo Tetris, and I'll tell you why. I know it's like the simple falling blocks game, but God damn it. The, that game is so addictive. It was a, the first addictive puzzle game and it holds up. Oh yeah. Which is so crazy. It's so elegant in its simplicity. And, you know, admittedly it's one of those games I'll still pop in and play. It's to me, Tetris is, it's actually better than the games I'm going to list, but it's like a game like Miss Pac-Man or Pac-Man, the original Pac-Man or, Arkanoid and Breakout, where I'm like, this is the perfect game. Or Space Invaders, where it's just a a way of playing, and it's like, this is the perfect game to play. And to this day, yeah, you you don't have to do... I like some of the new Tetris games, like Tetris Ultimate and Tetris Effect, and they play around with the the rules a little bit, and like you can like have... You can reserve a block and bring it in when you need it, and all that kind of stuff. And there's like a lot of cool shit, but the, the classic Tetris formula, it's like chess, it's just it's perfect and it, it, really it is, is endlessly playable. So, I, and that version of Tetris, as you well know, and I'm sure the audience knows is a famous version of Tetris. Like, and Nintendo's extraction of Tetris out of the Soviet union is famous. I mean, they're, they are, someone would have done it, but they are a major player in getting it out and proliferating it. And it's almost like no one ever talks about that anymore. It's, it's detailed pretty deeply in, in game over. I think the book, which, Oh, I think you're right. Um, 
There, and there's a couple of books about that whole in, the infighting with Nintendo and Tengen, then Atari and the two different versions and everything like that. But yeah, man, that, that's why they were fighting over it. It's, it's timeless. You know, that's re- really, I think of, it's funny that you mentioned Miss Pac-Man. I think of that in the same breath of, of just a game that doesn't get old. It just doesn't. There's just something really special, inherently special, unlike any other game. And there are there are other great puzzle games. You think of Dr. Mario. It's a brilliant game. Oh, yeah. Awesome game. And then rip-off games with a slightly different twist in the conceit, like Sega's Columns or something. There are other good ones that, that came not too far after. But, you know, the OG is Tetris. And that, you know, just... In, and, you know, pound for pound on my shelf of many retro games, I'll pop that one in still to this day. So, and the Game Boy yeah. version is iconic as well. Yeah. That's that, that's the one a lot of people your age will mention because that's the one specifically that they grew up with. And also just really easy to play in a handheld capacity, you know, just lends itself to handheld gaming and, and specifically that console, you know, even the, even the spinach screen, it doesn't matter. You know, it didn't didn't matter in monotone and all that kind of thing. And the box art, the Nintendo just did such a great job with the with that purple iconic box really art. Is. It's it's just great graphic art and it pops and yeah, and they just made it work like it just works and it was very attractive and God, people love Tetris. It's it's good shit. It's so good. And shout out to Blue Scooty. We just talked about him on Constellation, the kid who just broke Tetris. And just the, the and the way that speed running com- community or the you know the Tetris community is just still burgeoning after decades is it's an addictive there's an addictive quality to Tetris when I play it uh, when I when a new version comes out or I go back to an older version and I play it I, I see it like when I'm not playing it and yeah a wonderful idea there's that story that we've talked about this right the guy who was obsessed. And used to, I guess he got, I guess this led to a nervous breakdown. So it was kind of sad, but like would go in the shower and try to, you know, like make a game out of the falling shower, you know, beads of water that were coming out of the shower. And so it's like, yeah, you could see getting that level of just overtaken by an addictive. It is. It's addictive. It's addictive. Man, the Soviets, they figured it out late, but they got something out there that actually mattered before they fell apart. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the last great contribution, right? So I would kind argue, of. I would argue it's, you would have to go look. I'm sure they invented different things, but you have to assume it's easily the biggest cultural um, export of Soviet history. And it happened so late, which is so interesting. Really yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. All right. So go. you're on number eight now. All right. So eight, this one was interchangeable. I gave the upper hand to the one I'm going to mention, but. This could have easily also been DuckTales for me. The only re and I'm not maligning DuckTales. It's one of my favorite NES games. But I think DuckTales gets a little bit of an unfair advantage because of the music. The music in that game, especially the first one. I get DuckTales 2 is kind of on my list of games I never really played. But the first DuckTales music is so good that I think it's part of the reason people misremember it as being like superb now it is a good game it's a great licensed game capcom's behind it i love the pogo mechanic it's very fluid but it's a little bit people are gonna get mad at me for saying this it's a little bit clumsy it's a little bit weird but the music is so impeccable 
that I think people give it that shot in the arm. I think it's a great game, but I think it's the music that pushes it over the edge for a lot of people, if you really think about it. Mm. So instead of DuckTales, I'm going with the first Castlevania. Mm-hmm. Had to go with one of them. I think pound for pound, I think Castlevania 3 is the best of the trilogy. Simon's Quest also crazy soft place in my heart for that game i love like zelda 2 like mario 2 i love how different it is than the book ending sort of contributions in the franchise simon's quest is a weird game and i love that but castlevania there's something about that first castlevania call first of all when you look at the date i think it came out in 87 it's so early it's really on the cutting edge of pushing the nes to its limits insofar as graphics, music, and just a game, maybe one of the earlier games that I felt like was an experience. You know, I grew up with the Atari 2600. It was very bare bones musically with the crazy one bit music, really rudimentary graphics. So coming into a game like Castlevania early on for us with the NES, it's the perfect blend of graphics, gameplay, music, and atmosphere. You know, it was the first, maybe along with Metroid was the first game that had a very specific tone to it. It felt like you were getting lost and immersed in a world, whether, you know, whether that was a science fiction world on another planet, or in this case, a horror world that was very hammer horror, you know, which was, which was really cool. And I'm not even a horror guy, but I love the fact that they just kind of doubled down on classic Dracula, Frankenstein, and sort of mashed it up. They just sort of mashed it all up. Pushes the Nintendo to its max, I think, and especially for that period. And something about the, the, the nature or the flavor of the platforming, not as fluid and sort of loose as a Mario game, let's say, but the fact that it feels a little tighter like Simon can't really jump very high, can't reverse direction in midair. His weapon has a very fixed range. Even the special weapons are kind of saddled with inherent challenges. You know, the arc of the axe, the short range of the holy water, the the way the um, dagger, although it has range, it's a little underpowered. It's very cleverly designed to be difficult and offer up challenges. I think it's one of the hardest NES games actually, but it's so good that it forces you, everybody that's played it gets good at it because it's so good. You don't want to stop playing. It's addictive. And it's the only game I ever called Nintendo powers hotline on to beat the second form of Dracula, that giant cookie monster guy, because I was so, I knew, and you know, what's crazy about that. I knew how to do it. It's just that I could not get, myself to do what I needed to do because it's difficult. You know, you have to be, it's one of those games where you really do have to get good at it. Mm-hmm. And it, but it allows you to over time. Um, really one of the, one of the great classic games. And again, it could have been, it's interchangeable between any of the Castlevanias, eight bit Castlevanias, but I had to, I had to give the nod to uh, Castlevania this time because I'll still go in and pop this in and play it and challenge myself. And you know what the other thing is, dude? A game of momentum. Like if you don't get past Frankenstein and Igor or the boss of the fourth stage, right? Yep, with the holy water. 
Yeah, with the holy water. <laughs> if you don't get through that level with your holy water and your long whip, your best whip intact to go on to level five, you're fucked. You might as well just start over. No, totally. Exactly. Because you can't really do that stage without, and especially the Grim Reaper. Because there's, I remember the, the Grim Reaper fight, like the death fight, which is, I think, an iconic that fight is scary, I think, from an like from an iconography point of view, which is very eerie and weird. Like all the sickles just appear oh, out of so nowhere cool. and he like appears and then disappears. It's so beautiful. That whole stage, stage five to me is iconic Castlevania in my mind. Absolutely. It's like it's like the, the, like the torture chamber, basically, and the music and like it's just so tense and you can't. Th- so the thing about Castlevania. And I think it's what makes Castlevania three so brilliant, actually, because it exposes it and explores the different ways you could play Castlevania is that it roots you. Basically, you can't cancel anything that Simon does. So he's like a buff. He's he's a buff barbarian like character. And he has this, like you said, this this forward momentum. The whip is going to go. It's going like you can't do anything about it. You have to read the screen to make sure you're not going to get knocked back. Because the knockback in it, pardon the pun, is so, and the game is so strong. So when you jump, there's no, you're jumping. Like, and that's what you have to do. And you have to just get used to the rules of the game. Unlike a Mega Man or a Ninja Gaiden where you can fucking move in the air and do all sorts of crazy things. And that's fun too, but that's arcadey. This, I think what they were going for is some, some level of groundedness. I, yeah. That's how I read it. And yeah. And what's interesting. realistic. Right. And what's interesting about, you were talking about the iconography from Castlevania and all that Castlevania is the reason I'm into vampires. Castlevania is the reason I, I care about these, these werewolves and vampire bats and all these different things. It's all from Castlevania. I wouldn't care about any of it, but with how, but for how it was portrayed in the game and I'm thankful for it. It's a lot. Look at, look at the, the way you fast forward all these years to what Netflix did the Castlevania, which was extraordinary. Yeah, it, it, we we finally watched it. I think we got we're in the fourth season. I canceled Netflix for a little while because I was just like, I'm I'm kind of over Netflix. I'll, I'll get it later and we'll finish it. But I was like, this is good shit, like really, really good shit. And what's so cool about it is that the show fully realizes and, and wraps its arms around the religious iconography that is so important to it that the games in the West, especially, were just like, eh, this not, that's a boomerang. It's like, oh, OK. <laughs> Right, <laughs> that's weird. Yeah, a little bit westernized, but you, you're right though, man. We didn't grow up with Bell Lugosi or right. Christopher Lee. We weren't introduced. I to didn't those. get the references in the credits when I was a kid. That right. reference, no. all that stuff. I had no idea what right the fuck they were talking. Head. Yeah, I was like, well, I don't know what that means. But okay. we had no clue. But I love what you say too about the controls. It, it is a, a very decisive sort of mindset when it comes to designing the way a game's going to play. Where yeah, you need to commit. And that's what makes it hard. There's no forgiving. There's no second guessing. You, you're committing to your jump. You're committing to your attack. And it's very distinctive. It, it really kind of formed a, an unwritten style of platforming that I think was v- just as influential in many ways as a Mega Man or a Mario. You know, and, and the fact, I think part of the fact we couldn't articulate this as kids, but why we liked it and why we celebrated it was those differences. It was if maybe you were in the mood to play A and maybe you were in the mood to play B. So you had that sort of variety. And that's why there needs to be a Castlevania in every top 10 list. I think if you're curating a list of NES experiences, like must play NES experiences, there's got to be at least one in there. Now, and and, and, uh, since we're we can talk about it later, but it just makes more sense to talk about it now, which is Castlevania Mm. three, which was number two on my list Mm. is 
Castlevania three is the perfect Castlevania. there. So there are really three types of Castlevania core Castlevania games. There are classic Castlevania games. There are the Metroidvania games, and then there are the 3d games. And in terms of the classic style Castlevania, Castlevania three is perfect. I mean, to me, that's a perfect game. When people ask like, what is a, what is a perfect or the best of the best of the best? It's like it's Castlevania three is a great example of this because the thing about Castlevania, the original Castlevania, it's like you said, it's a game you can master when I'm in a mode and I'm playing Castlevania, like I'm playing it. I can be Castlevania in 20 minutes, right? Straight up. And that that's no. In fact, like you said, it's a game of momentum. If for some reason I die on Frankenstein's level or don't get through with the Holy War, it's like I would just reset it because it would just be quicker and easier than struggling through with the fucking boomerang. <laughs> so or hard. hoping that you get a random drop, which would happen occasionally where you get holy water. But right. That's true. which would which would save you. But Castlevania three is so interesting because it explores, like I said earlier, the differences in protagonist style wherein you're not locked in as playing like so you can play as Trevor, which is Simon's dad, and they play similarly. But then you have access to Sypha, who's like a weak mage who uses distance magic and you have Grant, which is kind of a very fast moving character who has a dagger and he does very little damage, but he can go on the walls and the ceilings and and all that. And you have Alucard introduced to the series there who can fly in the air as a vampire bat and fires fireballs out of his cape and does all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, this is fucking brilliant. I, I don't know who. I have to read about it because I actually don't know, but it's interesting to know about who came up with this idea of like, why don't we make it so that there's a bunch of different characters that are somehow all related and you fight all of them and you can choose to bring them with you or leave them behind when you find them, but you can only take one with you at a time. And we have branching paths of stages of stages. You'll never see in a playthrough. Like you can't see all the stages in the playthrough. And I, it's just perfect. It's just a perfect it's game. Perfect. And I, what, what was so fun about it was uh, it was about the journey to the castle. The game begins where you're far outside in Wallachia or whatever, and you're going through the that iconic first level, I think, when you're in the village and it's all overrun by zombies and stuff. And you just can read into it's just beautiful. The backgrounds are beautiful. The moon in the, in the sky and all that. And you're working your way to the castle so that about halfway through the game, you actually arrive at the castle. And now it's like the game begins almost. And you're outside the castle and you're trying to get in and you breach it. And then you're in familiar areas and some of the music's familiar. And I was like, this is and you're seeing it through Trevor's eyes. So Simon has never seen this yet, which right. is so like you're really I always the, forget that, which is so dope. I just oh, it's so good. Plus the intro sequence. So the let me think here. The intro to I think it's Hybroxia 2 is inspired beat for beat by Castlevania 3s. Like you can lay them side by side, basically. And we took a lot of the different iconography out of it. I love that. Um, the, it has the awesome intro where it's like the film reel on the sides. And phew, what a game, dude. What a game. Oh, it's so good. I mean, that might be my favorite NES game in terms of just atmosphere. They really double down on like, let's really play up. And, and we're three games deep now, so it's established. The IP is established. And going back to like, it's it's sort of like Castlevania 1 on steroids. It's sort of like a culmination of the best things about the first two games mashed into one s- sort of swan song for a console that's hard to beat. I mean, it's I mean, it's probably one of my favorite Castlevania games. Simon's Quest is interesting because later on we would get Symphony in the Night 
one of my favorite games ever, which really is Simon's Quest on steroids. It's like taking that formula of a of a little more open world, now we call it Metroidvania, and just sort of blowing out the the borders and just saying we can make this huge now. Not to mention beautifully animated and beautifully visually realized and all that kind of stuff. But three is special because it was so different than the first two. It was a little bit of a return to one. But again, like just taking it, just taking it to the next level, which was, uh, and that the first time in a mainline Castlevania that you could play as anybody but that one dialed in protagonist. So it, it kind of, it gave us more in terms of story, you know, it's like made the world feel bigger. There's other characters, there's other characters with stakes. There's, you know, the battle of good and evil is, you know, feels bigger now. It feels like the world is larger. And it would open up to what we would know Castlevania on the 16-bit generation and onward, you know, Symphony of the Night and all the stuff we would get later. It's one of the, I think it's an, I still think without the show, I would definitely call it an undersung IP, but it shows its timelessness with with something like the, the powerhouse uh netflix show it's they're, they're just it's so beautifully done and they just don't do a new game it's like the people yearn for castlevania konami they yearn for it and let's, it's so weird it's just so we were saying this and i was expressing this to micah when we were watching the show it's like the it this is so cool this is so good this whole thing is so good why haven't we hatched a new castlevania franchise out of this yet what is going on here it's just so obvious before the netflix series made it i guess a household name it was a game and like let's not for, forget about that and that's the best way to explore it, exploring the castle exploring the countryside that's what it's all about it's it's just konami so frustrating i wish that i wish that they would either release the ip and let someone you know lease it basically from them or sell it to them so that they can do something with it but it's never going to happen um, what about crossing over Castlevania into a little more of a survival horror flavor where you have sort of a period piece survival, survival. I know that exists. That must exist, you know, just as far as period specific survival horror, but Castlevania specifically as an IP could lend itself really well to that just in terms of the whip. You know what I mean? It'd be really interesting to do something with zombies or the undead and specifically melee weapons or, and then you could get inventive with it too. You could get, you could be traditional, but you could also say, okay, let, how do we make this a little more modern? Or, you know, maybe we even get into like, we cross over into like simple rudimentary guns and gunpowder related weapons and I don't know, primitive explosives. And so I don't know, it could be, could be neat, man. It could be kind of cool to reinvent something, kind of blend the old with the new and make it a little relevant. So that, you know, survival horror, modern gamers would dig it. Old heads like us would be like, oh, it's Castlevania, of course. So like, here's my money. That's interesting. Well, this is what I was looking up was the timeline for Castlevania, mm. which is intricate. And there's so many different time periods you could explore. You could explore... Like Lament of Innocence is the first one that is the earliest game. It takes place in 1094. Holy and shit. Castlevania Dawn of Sorrow is the la latest one. It takes place in 2036. So, so the big games like uh, the original Castlevania is 1691. Symphony of the Night is 1797. 
Circle of the Moon's 1830, and the Castlevania Adventures 1576. So there's all these different places where they can you can you can see the you're getting further away from like classic knights and you're getting more towards guns and all that you could. And to your point, I, I don't know why I envisioned it, but I almost envisioned like a Victorian era, early police sort of like investigate. It's almost too resident evil, but it would be like the castle appeared and they send like a detective or maybe he's like a, a and or a vampire hunter. Like maybe he has like a van- they They have some guy come along with them or whatever. And they go and explore this thing through the lens of like the 1880s or the 1890s or whatever. I love it. Because one of the cool things about that, that Castlevania, the animated series really stresses, which I think is very cool, is the deeply technological level of the castle and how Dracula, because he's lived for so long, has extracted knowledge throughout time that like there's an early they never really reference it again I don't think but there's a time where like they find this thing and it's got light bulbs like they find a room with light bulb like like that Dracula made with like primitive light bulbs in it it's like that's, that's so creepy that's so cool you know I love it. so something like that would be pretty cool so seeing it through that 1880s almost the order the, the order 1886 style Victorian meets steampunk kind of situation would be pretty pretty cool if you can, it's a gimme. Yeah, there's just a bunch of things you can, but I do believe ultimately Castlevania needs to be best represented. I don't mind 3D Castlevania, and some of the 3D Castlevania games are good, especially I think Castlevania 64 and Legacy of Darkness are often been like, oh, those games suck. But the N64 games, I like those games personally. They're not great, but they're better than people let on. But some of the 3D stuff sucks. Like the last game in, in, um, in Mercury Steam's series was pretty bad, but. 2D is where I want to see it. Ultimately, okay. you know. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, I like that. I like doubling down on two. I mean, you can do both, and you should do broken. both. They should they should explore a, a big budget 3D Castlevania game because that's how they're going to make money. But they should focus also on something cla- like we haven't gotten a Metroidvania style game since 2008, I think, and mm. we haven't gotten a classic yes. Castlevania game since around the same time because they released the what was it the remake of Castlevania Adventure on WiiWare or whatever back in the day. Wow, was so, that on Wii? Okay. Yeah, first it was on wow. Wii. I like I like the idea of kind of bleeding in a little Lovecraftian horror too with Castlevania. It doesn't have to be traditional monsters, mummies, and werewolves, and Frankenstein and Dracula. I love all that, but maybe a little bit more of that sort of out of body, disturbing horror, Silent Hilly. You know, I don't know. There's something. There's something there that you could evolve the franchise a little bit while still clinging to all the conventional things that we've come to expect from it. It is weird that, you know, Konami's just not invested, you know, in an IP like that when they're making money on, you know, I know everybody says pachinko and slot machines and stuff, but their, uh, their resources are directed in a different, you know, in a different area now, which is, it's sad because we as as fans dating back to the 80s we want that legacy but you know the same thing with Iram they they went the same way with that you know what i mean they changed names and then everybody was in gaming all right sorry we got lost there i don't i think we got what dagan was saying i have no idea so, <laughs> we'll together here Dig, we don't we still don't have your ninth and tenth game so let's get those on the record before we continue to dissect everything okay these are lumped in together and again like we mentioned all six could probably fit into this top 10 but god damn it colin i know it's controversial but i'm doing it man mega man 2 and 3 for my 9 and 10 i had to do it i just love both of these games so much 
And you know what? I think it bears including them both because, damn it, they're just different enough. They really are. When I think of Mega Man 2, right, I think of an epic game graphically, like something that was very ambitious in terms of the size of the sprites. You got these giant robot monsters that weren't even mini bosses. They were just kind of along the level, basic grunt enemies, you know, and the I think of Mega Man 2 as very colorful, a little more whimsical. I think some of the great, I think the when you look at the great boss characters, the robot masters in Mega Man 2 versus Mega Man 3, it's a hard contest, but I think Mega Man 2 probably gets the edge for the coolest sort of assembly of robot masters of, of bosses. And you know what? But I think of Mega Man 3 as being the slightly darker in tone cousin to Mega Man 2. It's a little, feels a little more serious. Things for, feel a little more dire. You have the slide mechanic that change. It's so fun to play. It changes everything. I think Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 3 on the NES is one of the greatest video game one, two punches ever. Like ever. Like it was a, it was a brilliant game. And then a follow-up with another brilliant game, but that follow-up was different. So as a body of work combined, you know, we talk about Chef's Kiss. I can't even think of a better one-two punch than Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 3. They're both legendary games. I still love to play them both for different reasons. I think I'd rather be immersed in Mega Man 2's world, but I'd rather play Mega Man 3 because it's so fucking fun. You know what I mean? Like, it's so fun to play. And, you know, just really does your heart good. I know we talk about Capcom. So nice to see them still so not only relevant, but killing it. But, you know, our love for Capcom dates back to the mid to late 80s. And you have that Capcom, Capcom dev published thing. You just know, you know, when you see Capcom, Capcom, it's going to be it's going to be good. And this was the embodiment of that. I love Mega Man 4. I love Mega Man 5. But Mega Man 2 and 3 are just for me. They both need to be included. I'm sick of that argument about which one's better. I think they complement each other so perfectly. And dude, I mean, and also I don't want to discount Mega Man 3's bosses. I mean, you see Snake Man back there. He's probably mm-hmm. my favorite favorite of all time. And then his brothers, Gemini Man and Magnet Man. And Gemini Sh- Man is such a cool design. And Shadow. Magnet Man's my favorite. Yeah, Shadow. Oh yeah. Shadow Man, right? I mean, Mega Man 2 just has... If you go crash, metal, bubble, heat, flash, and quick, that that's kind of a hard that that that's just the badass gang, man. That's and wood. Throw wood in there, you got the seven samurai. You know what I mean? How, yeah. how can you beat those guys? Beating on his chest. <laughs> it's awesome. It's such a cool animation, you know. And yeah, yeah. Mega Man 3's bosses, I I I love them. Like some some of them are weird and quirky. Hard man, top mm. man. I like him too. Yeah, but I I always I the concept of Gemini Man when like I just love that everyone knows Mega Man 3 is my favorite game of all time and I don't have it on my list because I was trying to be like more objective like if I'm going to make you play one Mega Man game you really should start with two and I'll explain why I think that is but when you walk into and in Gemini Man's uh, layer and then he you know he appears I love that thing where the, the fight it's just him and he does his little 
thing like he's ready to fight and then the, the fight starts and one of them just jumps out of the other one and there are two of them good shit and it's like it's like so fucking good and you imagine how cool that would look either in very fine animation or in 3d and like a new game like how mm, cool that would look dude just like there's so many they did such a beautiful job of using the tools at their disposal to make these wonderful worlds it's it, they're they're incomparable in my opinion so i'm glad that they're on your list i never thought of a 3d you know, more modern remake of a classic. When I we always think, all right, what's going to be next? We we Mega Man Eleven. That game really grew on me. I really liked that game. Mega Man Nine and Ten, which were echoing what we had in the beginning. I never, but I never think of doing a remake like we were just talking about on Summon Sign, like 2019's Link's Awakening, which is a remake of a 2D Game Boy game, mm. right? Like, could you do a ground up remake of, let's say, a Mega Man Two? in three dimensions while on one hand honoring what the game was and really trying to do it justice and then also evolving it to make it a new experience in three dimensions. I'm not sure, you know, if you could really pay homage and and sort of honor the legacy of the original and I don't know. It's it, it's kind of a weird thing. I probably would rather see new Mega Man. I would really love to see a new 16-bit esque Mega Man X. I know yeah, a lot be cool. of us have been rooting for that. But yeah, man, these two these two games. I mean, Mega Man. I know I already know how you feel about Mega Man, but yeah, man, this is uh, this is peak. This is peak eight bit. This is and this is where our video game fandom really started and and grew from. You know, this is kind of a, a genesis point in a lot of ways. And showed us what video games could be capable of. Mm-hmm. You know, the characters, the world building, simple good versus evil. Very sort of Tetsuan Adam, Adam Boy sort of good robot versus evil inventor type of thing. Um, definitely echoes what came before with uh, in anime and manga. But so simple. But it didn't matter because it was so good. It was so iconic just so iconic it doesn't need to be you know a philosophical doctrine it doesn't need to always be Hemingway and Shakespeare like it's just good shit and 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 a franchise that um well Capcom did that poll I totally missed it this was what around the holidays or I did I just did it actually I think it's still up oh it's still I still have it in my mail yeah I did it where is it uh Capcom super elections it's at captown.capcom.com. I have to go do that after the show. Yeah, I, I, I voted in it myself. When I saw so. how many people voted, I was a little bit surprised. Like it didn't seem high to me. It was like thousands. Yeah, like, it's really, it, it, it is. It's annoying, and people don't. A lot of people don't participate in anything, you know. So it's. Right. Not, but that's why you want to use. Your, that just means your voice might be louder if you if you do choose to participate. You definitely should. It's yeah. I got to do cool. that. I'm glad it's still active. Okay, that's cool. Um. What I was going to say day here about Mega Man is and Mega Man 2 and Mega Man 3 and I'm always happy to talk about these games is what's fun about all NES games in some sense. I, and I think what's what's unusual about a game like Castlevania 3 where this isn't true is that you can kind of see some of their flaws or things that were not done. Like Mega Man 3 is a profoundly unfinished game and it's obvious if you know how to where to look. Why is the theme song on the start screen two or three minutes long but there's no cutscene. it just stays there like that's not a that's not an accident they had no time 
to finish that? Why is there so much flicker and slowdown? Because they had no time to optimize the game. Even the doc robot bosses boss like revisited stages are just reused assets, which I think they do a really good job with. Like, for instance, you go back to Needleman stage, but it's nighttime, which is pretty cool. So they do a really awesome job of filling in the seams and making it making it shine. And the one thing that I regret that we didn't get more of out of Mega Man back then that we only get from expanded literature, <clears throat> the instruction manuals, etc., is the story is is really great. And it's a bummer that we didn't get to experience more of the rivalry between the doctors like Mega Man 3. Mega Man 3 especially has a really great story because it's about how Dr. Light and Dr. Wiley make amends with each other and build a robot together. And you end up fighting that robot at the end of the game. But you wouldn't really know that by and there are hints throughout the game and it's much more fleshed out in the Japanese version and, and like the literature around it. But there are logos where it's uh, on Magnet Man stage. They're there. And I think in one other place where it's uh, there's a Dr. Lo- Wiley logo, but it's Dr. R.W. It's like an R and a W. And that's right. Dr. Right, which is what it is in with Dr. Light in Japanese. And it's like this new bespoke sort of logo that they made for the game as they come back together and become friends again. But he, but Wiley just betrays, you know, light again and gamma, this peacekeeping robot they make ends up being corrupted. And so that's what you fight at the end, but you don't really get any of that. The game would be even better if you got any of the context as to what you're doing and where you're going and why you're doing it. So that's like what's lost in those games, which I think is a bummer. And that's why I think that they're so good still, because you don't really need any of that. And the reason I think Mega Man 2 is the one that people want to go back to is just because I think it's Mega Man in its purest form and its most consistent form because Mega Man 1 is a is a great game, but it's different in the sense that there's only six robots instead of eight. And so it's a shorter game. It's much harder. And Mega Man's much heavier. Yes. As well. Like, it doesn't feel quite right. The reason Mega Man 9 and 10 mimic the Mega Man 2 is because people feel like Mega Man 2 is Mega Man in, in its purest form because every Mega Man really after that for several Mega Mans adds something fundamental to the game that changes it and that's where the the kind of disputes about which game is best come in so Mega Man 2 is standard Mega Man uh, no sliding and, and any any of that stuff Mega Man 3 introduces the slide and rush rush Mega Man 2 introduces what they call the item numbers, which would be turned into rush. These are kind of these platforms and jets that you can use to get around the stages. And then Mega Man 4 adds in the power shot, which allows you to hold down B and release it for a, a shot that's worth three shots. And a lot of people felt that that kind of ruined Mega Man forever in some sense. I don't necessarily agree, but. The idea that you basically just play and hold down B at all times. So like, why wouldn't you just play like that? And so when they made Mega Man 9, which I couldn't believe was a real thing, like I, I'll never forget. I was like, what? Like, I can't believe they're doing this. This is so incredible. And they went back to Mega Man 2 style. No sliding, no charge shot. I think the thing that frustrated me a little more was when they did Mega Man 10, they stuck with Mega Man 2 style again. And like, it would have been cool for you to evolve and get into the slide. Because for me, the perfect stuff is the slide, no charge shot. The slide adds so much. It's so fun to use and get around so running and sliding under oh. and turning around like right in the, in the character's back. It's just it's wonderful. So and rush having rush in the mix. Super yeah. And rush cute. is in there like they they came, you know, and in Fune, this is where Inafune's brilliance comes in is like we have this. We have this just this random I, these items. Let's make it into a character or whatever. And it's and this is little robotic dog. Brilliant. 
And so I love it. Yeah, I love the choices, Mega Man 2 and 3. Yeah, I, I left 3 out just because I didn't want to put Mega Man in there twice. And I would direct people towards 2 because I think it's going to be more difficult to go backwards. Like, if you're really curious, you should start with 1 and oh, then yeah. go into 2 and then go into 3, 4, 5 in order. Because by the time you get to 5 and 6, especially, the game starts to get pretty crazy. In turn. And I think those are great games. But you have some pretty dynamic shit that they do in 5 and 6 that they don't do in other ones. Really huge underwater levels. And the, like Gravity Man stage in Mega Man 5 where it's all upside down. Mega Man 6 introduces Rush kind of joining you as like your armor, armor and all right. of that and is more of like a reusable character. So seeing them in order and sequence, I think, is kind of vital to understanding all of it. And by the time you get to 7 and 8, you kind of lose me. But you get me right back with 9 and 10. Yeah, they always did try to evolve it, though. And the mm. mechanics were a big part of that. I mean, it's such a good point. You know, it was Rush, then it was the charge shot. Then it was the armor slash jetpack. And of course, you know, in three, you had the slide. So they always tried to build. They always tried to They always tried to kind of return to the purity, but just kind of build on it, evolve it, create something new to get excited about. And, and you're right about one. You know, one is the bedrock. You know, you could see them making strides. They were building towards something that would come to fruition in two, three, and onward. But one is one is rough. It's a it's a sort of a block foundation, not poured concrete. You know, it's a little rough. But you know, but it does serve as the foundation for, you know, what would come later. So it's cool if especially if you're interested in the franchise as a whole to see that flashpoint, you know, to see where it all sprung out of. One is one is an experience because it is so different. You know, if you look at the whole body of a six and how primitive it feels, but I love that you could see it's a building block. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's even more so than a Mario one, two, three, that Mega Man one, just everything about it, even the box art, right? Like they, they didn't, they didn't get it yet. <laughs> it was just like, it was a Hail Mary kind yeah, of. Yeah, they, they really, it's a great point. <laughs> they really didn't get it. And Mega Man 2 Mega Man 2 is an an amazing enhancement. Just the stage select screen is so iconic to me. It's one of the most iconic pieces of game art ever Beautiful. and just love it. And and then they that's where the whole creation of the state I mean the stage select screen comes from the first one but having their faces as portraits instead of the bodies of them and they just made so many choices that end up becoming this icon iconography that everyone well not everyone but people that like that kind of stuff know and it's and it's mimicked to this day. Very similar to Mega Man X constantly being copied with their stage select screen where it's like the, the four windows in the bottom and the four windows on the top with the detail in the middle on like a computer screen you know like I, that's mimicked all of the time when i see that i'm like damn that's straight out of Mega Man x so good so all right so we have your top 10 we have my top 10 are there any other games that you wanted to dive deeper into that you that you selected you know what i mean i think i think you should probably pick on me a little bit about smb3 and why why I have SMB two in there? So we'll get to that. I mean, Ninja Guy. I should explain the first game on my list, Ninja Gaiden. It was probably the first game I thought of because I love it so much. And I think if I think of Tecmo's Ninja Gaiden, first one came out in '89, the first of a trilogy over the lifespan of the console. All of them are great, but if you go back to that first experience, I think pound for pound, it's probably the greatest experience for me on the NES in terms of a game I love engaging with because it's so fun to play, 
but also as just an overall experience when you look at the entire thing, the way it's all put together with the gameplay and the chapters and the cutscenes and telling a story and just, you know what, man, damn it. Like I'm 50 years old. Like I grew up in the eighties. It was the first time I remember outside of an arcade experience like Shinobi, right? Where you got to play as a ninja and how important ninjas were to us. I can't overstate the importance of ninjas in the eighties, right? We had storm shadow, we had snake eyes, right? We had all the classic ninjas, but you don't guys don't even understand. Like there was a ninja episode of every TV show. Like there was a ninja episode of Knight Rider. There was a ninja episode of chips. There was probably a ninja episode of love boat, like fantasy. I like whatever, like Dukes of hazard, like every ninjas were like an integral part of the eighties. So this was like the first time when you got to play as a ninja at home, it was like, wow, this feels like playing like a ninja. It's fast. You get better and better at it as as time goes on. It's fluid. And it looks fucking badass. You know what I mean? Like in the cutscenes, you see young Ryu Hayabusa. He's got his dragon sword. It just did the whole ninja thing justice. Again, you got to really kind of give the nod to Shinobi for being the first. But this was the first at home, damn it. It was so, so good. And just the, the difficulty, how fluid the game was, how playing Ryu, you feel so light on your feet, feels like a ninja should mm-hmm. feel. You got a little bit of the fl- fast and fluid thing mashed up with the whole knockback, Castlevania-esque dynamic of you know, getting hit by an enemy and falling into a pit appropriately difficult definitely one of the hardest harder games on the nes for sure especially when you get later into the later worlds in the game and stages and just one of those games i'll still pop in and play and you know what dude i I almost forgot to mention the music is unrivaled you know so when you look at an overall entertaining gameplay experience during that time in the 8-bit era for the nes i don't think it gets any better than ninja gaiden you know, the only thing they did in building out and making two and three feel so different and evolved, they gave Ryu a different mechanic each time. So not only can he climb in walls now in part two, he could walk up the walls. And then in three, you have the hand over hand climbing under things and then being able to hop up onto platforms. So there was always a little bit of an evolution in terms of mainstay mechanics and also ninja magic powers you know the optional pickups but basically the you know the the foundation was laid with one and then applied to the whole franchise but one dude is just it's kind of a masterpiece i mean it really is i think it's it's not mentioned in quite the same breath as mario and mega man and maybe things like contra and metroid but it's right up there with those games for me and and maybe maybe even in my top 5 i would argue so Ninja Gaiden, I just wanted to give a shout. And then Contra, you know what I mean? Like, who who doesn't love Contra? It's one of the great action platforming games. Just, ma- again, like makes you lament and long for that, that Konami of old who just, I don't know. We talked about this on Summon Sign yesterday. It was like they didn't need to make it that good. We would have probably bought it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's, it's a masterclass in like, what we loved in the arcade and we could just play it at home endlessly. 
You know, the only th- only downside to Contra is, but I'll say this: like Jackal, like like Life Force, like Stinger. I would say those Konami eight bit games all had this thing where they were difficult. But again, they were so choreographed that you could get good at them with time. There was a, they weren't random. There weren't endlessly respawning enemies. It wasn't, they were very, you know, there were a lot of games that were sloppily designed, even some of the licensed games, you know, that felt broken. These games were so well developed, but there's something about Contra that doesn't lend itself well to the two player thing, especially on the vertical levels. Very frustrating. You'd rather play this one on your own, unlike Life Force and Jackal, which I think are great two-player games. But that's the only thing about, you know, that's the only thing about Contra that I would say is that for me, it's one of those games I still I still want to play. You know, and like Life Force, played them instead of doing my homework in high school to the degree where I could just get through the entire game without dying. <laughs> You know what I mean? I could have done, I could have had a much better GPA, but I just played Life Force and Jackal and Contra over and over again. I was so good that, you know, that was, uh, that was the Dagster in high school. Oh my God. That was the Dagster, man. Um, Um, Now I want you to yell at me about SMB. We got to, I I will will get there in a moment. I want to, I want to just linger on Ninja Guy just for a second and just say, it's frustrating that Koei Tecmo doesn't, choose to release these games again in some sort of collection form there are plenty of partners out there that would work with them i'm sure that they have awesome well hopefully in their archives awesome art and and things to share and concepts and all the rest that we've seen already deeply with castlevania with konami and Mega Man with capcom and these games deserve that kind of credit too because though the ninja gaiden games one two and three have been playable on virtual console in the past and they were you know you might remember they were re-released somewhat obscurely on snes uh in a collection yeah that people weren't crazy about it just feels like these games are somewhat isolated like they no one people think it's frustrating to me that when people say ninja gaiden they think that it's ninja gaiden like team ninjas ninja gaiden from Mm the Xbox era, which is great. And those, those games are iconic, but that's not to me, that's not Ninja Gaiden. Like the, the hardcore difficulty and insanity started back in the two D in the 2d world on the NES. And all, I agree with you. All three games are truly wonderful. The merging of storytelling with the ninjutsu and the fast movement, the crazy fast movement, but that there being a sacrifice of you're just a little ninja and you're going to get bounced back. You're going to take a lot of damage and all the rest is wonderful games. But as far as Mario 2 to Mario 3, I have Mario 2 and Mario 3 on my list. So very similar to you, I I, I went with two Mario games when you went to, with two Mega Man games because I think that both Mario games belong on the list. The hate around, not the hate, but any disgruntled, disgruntled people that have something to say about Mario 2 seem to mostly marinate on the fact that it's not a real Mario game in quotes. And I think that that's really done a lot of damage to its reputation with some people, which I think is so stupid because it's still a brilliant game in its own right. And that's the way we got it here. And through the context in which we got it, we didn't know any better. And so why does it really matter at all? Um, So Mario three, I think Mario three is an impeccable game base. Basically, I think you and I both agree that it lacks a battery battery functionality, which is strange. It could have even had a password functionality which Nintendo never shied away from in their first round of games with Kid Icarus and Metroid and so on. So, and we were getting password, password engaged games leading into like, uh, 
Castlevania 2 and wasn't codename Viper fucking password protected and stuff. So I think it was. Yeah. So I feel like that certainly is missing out of Mario 3. And I don't I, I, I you could say I don't understand why, but I understand why they didn't want to pay for the batteries and the cartridges and have all that functionality, which is stupid. And I know that that ruins the game for a lot of people. And so when you get to Super Mario World on SNES, that's basically a similar style game, but with the ability to save and it's much more granular. And I think that Super Mario World is a superior game. Super Mario World, you could argue that as a video game, Super Mario World it may, might be the best video game ever. I uh, agree. And so, but, and Super Mario 3 is a much more weighty foundation for that game than other foundational games we were talking about, no doubt. But I certainly think it's like the no-brainer game on the list because I think it's so emblematic of of the height of the NES. Like everyone loved this game, everyone played it. It was a complete obsession for everyone. So I just so I don't have any problem with Mario Two being on the list because I have a real soft spot for Mario Two as well. I think that's a wonderful game and doesn't get enough love. And so I think they should both be on the list. And so I have no problem having them both there amongst your Castlevanias and your Mega Mans and so, and so on and so forth. Of course, Mario. I think you could make a reasonable argument that Mario one belongs on the, on the top 10 list. I mean, that's a fucking oh, awesome absolutely. game too. You know, yeah. it's it just, it's a little too much for 10, 10, you know, for three of the 10 to be Mario. So you don't want to get that crazy with it, but yeah, it gets realistically. Stage. That's a, I mean, that's an iconic Yeah, I still, I love that game. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of being influential, the first, the pack in super Mario brothers game. I mean, dude, that was, that was the dawning of a new era. I mean, honestly, that is what took us from ColecoVision and Atari 2600 to what we would know in home gaming. Like, I think I struggle with the Super Mario 3 thing because I know it's a hot take. Like, and I still have trouble articulating the reasoning. Like, because it's one of those things that I wrestle with because I know it's a great game. Like, it's a complete ind- indication. And maybe the purest example of a video game company understanding their hardware so well and wringing every drip of quality out of that thing. Like, it's still a masterclass in how far can we push this fucking machine? You know what I mean? I, I totally acknowledge that. It's, it's beautiful. It's big. It's blown out. It's the third of an IP. So they're really getting their... And and Mario already existed, so they're really getting their sea legs under them and understanding what they have here. I think it's interesting. In terms of being influential, still, I think it's the, probably the most influential game of the 8-bit generation. And as far as Super Mario 2... And why I love it so much, like, yes, I was traumatized by Mario's three, Mario 3's lack of a password save. It was way too big of a game not to have that. I think I read somewhere not that long ago, relatively recently, that it was going to cost Nintendo another $20 then per cart. So that was like a bridge too far. And I guess maybe they could have justified people spending $75 for that game. I think people probably would have paid that, but they just, they just, or, you know, 60, 60, $70, whatever, instead of the 50, but they didn't. And I think, I don't, but I don't think that's all there is to me. I think there was something in going from Super Mario Brothers one to two 
where I don't know, man, it's a whole thing with Zelda two Simon's quest. We talked about this with Link's awakening. Like I just love the odd entry in a game. And what's funny about super Mario two is I loved how funky it was. I love that Nintendo is taking their IP already establishes their core IP, right. And saying, we're going to just totally turn this around 180 and go in a complete different direction. And it was so different. Super Mario 2 was so different than the first offering. And I just did just something I loved about the mechanics were different. The world building was different. You could pick, you know, the whole sort of conceit of picking up the vegetables and throwing them, picking between multiple characters. They all had different powers. Toad forever. I loved Toad is the only he's option. The best, dude. Oh, he's the only one. He's doing it's so it's fun to hover as Princess Peach or jump really high as Luigi, but Toad is just picking up the things out of the ground or being able to pick up an item super quick and run with it. It's so good. it's it's vital later on. It, playing as Luigi, I'm too I'm too nervous. You know, you know when you like you make a tough jump in a 2D platformer and then you don't think you made it, so you're like too hitting back and forth and you're like going back and forth on the character. And- <laughs> And then you end up falling when you like when you really would have just nailed it if you just left it alone. That's like that's like playing as Luigi the whole time. It's dangerous the second you have too much time to second guess everything. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, oh, I didn't make it, and you like start moving, then you just like back off the or go forward off the platform. It's so funny. It's so fun. I mean, it's such a fun game. But you know what? I only I like it even more now because the fact that we never returned to Subcom, we never returned to King Wart. We never return to this world or this model of Mario only makes it even more magnetic. You know, it's like it's it's truly the one off Mario. And that's only become more clear over time as we've got more and more Mario and as Mario became more and more important. Now they're building an entertainment franchise on Mario. It's not just games. You know, now we got the movies and this whole world outside of the game. So I just return to. Super Mario 2. I know it was R&D4's baby back then. And I have I have trouble with people saying it's not a real Mario game. I mean, that's Miyamoto's call. Like we have to respect even 1988 era Shigeru Miyamoto. That's that's the king. I know I, I would say especially 1988 era Shigeru Miyamoto. I mean, that's when he's just making everything up and it's all awesome, you know? Like that's he's the guy you definitely it. want to hitch yourself to. I mean, he still makes awesome shit today, but that's like, it's even crazier then because he was just making it all up. I mean, literally just. He really was. It's pretty wild. So he was shepherding the whole thing. But yeah, that that's the tastemaker, man. Like, you, and maybe you don't worship at the altar of Miyamoto like I do, but you know what I mean? That's, that's the guy. If he knows, then we could trust him. I mean, he's proven that. He had already proven that in the late 80s. But that's, uh, that game, that might be my favorite. That might be in the number one for me as far as NES goes. And just a game that I just is a pure delight. Like it's just such a joy to play. And I, I think I also kind of hitched my wagon to that game though, because it's one of a kind. It re, It's a purely one of a kind game. And it's there's something so special, probably something even unintended in how good it is because of that unique quality if it, if if it was the Doki Doki Panic IP introduced here, I think we would have loved it. But there's just something weird enough to make it a Mario game that just makes it that much better. You know what I mean? Because it just feels so different than what came before and what ended up coming after. 
because Mario 1 to Mario 3 is a very Castlevania 1 to Castlevania 3 thing for me. It's taking what was already great and making it somehow better. Much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mario 2 is that weird redheaded stepchild caught in the middle. And that's kind of that's kind of why I love it, Kyle. Yeah, I, I, you and I don't disagree with this at, uh, on this at all. I think Mario Two is a truly special game as well, and it's a it's a very nostalgic game for me as well. And liberate Wart for God's sake, like get him out of there. And why? I can't believe he wasn't in Smash Brothers. That to me, that's people so always bring up these random characters. Like, oh, this guy. I'm like, dude, Wart is has always been the biggest missing piece. Like, I don't understand how people don't see that. That that would have been so cool. If he was in that game at some point, but they, they're well, not, what they adds insult to injury is that shy guy. Uh, all the other SMB characters, SMB two characters that were yeah, they're like Mario then. party fodder now and all this shit, you know, they, like, they're in everything. Yeah. Right. But he's the one missing link. And I, think, I don't know I don't why know. that is like, there's gotta be a reason. There's the, gotta be a reason like why he's just ignored. That would have been such an easy early smash brothers character. You think would have been in one, not even the most recent one, but one in the past. And that would have been brought forward. You have the fucking Wii fit trainer. Are you kidding? (laughs) The Wii and Mr. Game and watch. I love Mr. But you don't have wart. Okay, cool. Very cool. It is. We, and it can't be the Fuji owns him thing because then Fuji would own all those guys. And if they're, if they're renting shy guy and Birdo and Astro and, Ninja and all the other SMB2 OG characters, then why can't they just rent Wart? I'll tell you what I think the problem is with Wart. Maybe we've said this before. I think if he was a little bit more distinctive from Bowser, King Koopa, whatever you want to call him, I think if he was a little more distinctive from Bowser, just in terms of a skin color, maybe they made Wart blue or pink. I think I think they're worried that they're it's too close. He's really not. They're both reptilian or amphibian yeah, or something. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're, an am, you're an amphibian racist. You think they all look the same. <laughs> Amphibious. Amphibious, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, okay. I noticed the conspicuous absence of mm. Zelda on your list. I right. have Zelda on mine, the first one. I think you could make an argument for Zelda 2 as well, which you and I both also have a soft spot for, but... Why no Zelda? I think the original Zelda game is a given. What a wonderful, special, unique, highly playable game to this day, in my opinion. Still one of the best Zelda games, I think. Top five, probably, Zelda games, the original I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right under my list of 10, I have no Zelda in parentheses. And that is the glaring omission on my list. I remember when I first discovered Zelda, Kyle. I remember thinking, because I'm old, that, oh... This what I remember literally thinking this. This is what they meant with adventure on Atari 2600. Like this is what it should have been. Like a character, a little recognizable character exploring a medieval world with dungeons and stuff and monsters and stuff. Not a little pixel running around holding an arrow fighting other pixels, you know, with a treasure that looked like a clump of pixels. You know what I mean? Like I, re- I remember being like, "Oh, this is what they intended with an adventure game, where you have to explore and find items and get better weapons and fight more and more powerful monsters." Like the impact of Zelda was so huge that I didn't even know if I liked it at first. <laughs> I was just like, "I don't know what this is." It was the first, along with other games 
to some degree like Metroid, where it was not an arcade experience. It wasn't a quarter munching straight up. We're going to make this really difficult. So you have to just stuff money in the coin slot. It was cryptic. It was obtuse. There was problem solving involved, exploration, and a lack of handholding that became a model of gaming starting with basically this game and its ilk. You know, th- th- this type of game did not exist to me in the arcade. And I was uh, too young for tabletop gaming. So I really didn't get it what would be an adventure game and what would later become in some form JRPGs, right? Like this was kind of similar or a JRPG adjacent at least to what we would know and what already existed in Japan, but we didn't know yet. So this game was really off-putting to me. I remember spending weeks, our grandma's neighbor, their kid, Michael, our friend had it. And he had his little setup in his finished basement. And he had a weird collection of games. Ultimately, he had, I remember Friday the 13th and Zelda specifically. He had Mega Man 1 as well, which is how I got introduced. Oh, to, did he to really? That. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, but that was my intro to Zelda. And I remember kind of watching him play from afar over a couple of grandma Sunday dinner visits and being like, I don't know about this. This is weird. It's not the typical platforming thing that I was used to or you know, a typical Miss Pac-Man thing or Donkey Kong where the goal was clear, right? It, was, it, it felt big and maybe a little intimidating. And then when I, when I just gave it a shot, five minutes led to 10 minutes led to 15 minutes. It was like, oh, I kind of understand what this is. And it's a, it's a new type of challenge and very special. And again, I could, this game as well as Zelda 2, Zelda 2 is another one. It's like so funky. They weren't afraid to make things different. You know what I mean? They, they, Nintendo is a masterclass of not returning to the well. Early Nintendo, they, I mean, give the tip your hat for that. Like they were, they were always willing. And I'm sure a lot, Miyamoto had a lot to do with this. They, they were innovators, man. And you think of every game, every classic Nintendo game, there is another NES game that echoes it, Mm. right? You think of Zelda two, think of battle of Olympus. It's an exact clone of Zelda two, right? It's so influential. You think of super Mario three, you think of a, another great game like McKid's, McKids is just Super Mario Brothers 3. That's all it is. So that influential nature, yeah, Zelda could have been interchanged for Metal Storm. Zelda could have been interchanged for Contra, one of the Mega Man games, Tetris on my list, whatever. But yeah, Zelda probably would have been, the first Zelda probably would have been my number 11. And then just looking at my list of the other 29 that didn't make it into the cut, maybe Zelda 1 and Zelda 2 would have been 11 and 12. But you're right. I mean, kind of an egregious omission, but if I'm just going, I think there, this might be an old man Dagan list and I need to play things that are easily digestible, you know, because for instance, and you know how this is, Colin, preaching to the choir a little bit, but like we have to play Final Fantasy VII Remake for Knockback. It's a big time investment. So I don't really have time to even think about starting a new quest in Zelda that's going to take 30 hours or something, 25 hours. So I'm thinking about, you know, plug and play. On the 16-bit, if we're talking SNES, I'm talking about Mega Man X. I'm talking about something I'm already so familiar with that I just, I love returning to that world because it's comfortable. You know, Zelda, I think Zelda still intimidates me a little bit. 
I'll give you a little Daigster in Zelda lore. I never even played the second quest. Never played the second quest in this game. So still kind of, uh, I don't know, still maybe, maybe there's something here, right? If we're on the therapy couch. Maybe the second quest is brilliant, dude. Just because just it reworks what's already there. It's just, it's a really good idea. And to make a deep game even deeper, it was totally unnecessary. That's a, that's a great example of you didn't need to even do that at all. <laughs> right. Because this game is so obtuse, I'm supposed to know that I'm supposed to burn this fucking bush down with a candle. It, but the Zelda games are vital. The the first two Zelda games, really the first three Zelda games, Link to the Past is is obviously the seminal one. Uh, those are really important games to my career because my walkthroughs for those games, my guides for those games, were what got me attention at IGN specifically. Yeah. Because I'm those guides are not for nothing. Like my other, I, I'm proud of all my guides because I was a fucking kid when I wrote them, but. My Zelda guides stand up really well. They're like ASCII art maps and like real detailed accounts on things you can do and how I love those guides. So, yeah, Zelda is important to me. Those old Zelda games, I, I knew those. I knew them at one time encyclopedically. I, I don't think I could do it like I did anymore now. I don't think I remember that deeply, but that's how you like in Link own. to the Past, you could beat the dungeons in the dark world, like in different orders. I love, you that. know, and like trying to figure out which orders you like. You had to do the first dungeon to get the hammer to get through the, the barriers. But right. then you, the world was kind of your oyster. Oh, that game! It was interesting. I love that oh, game. Magnificent. Yeah, but you made your bones with the with these games, man. And mm-hmm. yeah, Zelda. I mean, who who could overstate? It's the beginning of a legendary franchise. I mean, no pun. It's the beginning of a legendary franchise, man. And it really was different. That's the thing for a then fourteen year old kid. It was mind blowing. It was like, oh, video games could be this, and it could be an investment that goes beyond. Even if I was good enough to beat whatever was in the arcade at that time, would it cost? 20 30 40 dollars and again it was a very superficial fun but superficial experience level one boss fight level two boss fight level six major boss roll credits this was a game that was like no you're going to be immersed in this world you're bilbo right Mm. you got to go get the dragon horde you're frodo you got to take the the ring to mount doom that's what it felt like it's like oh this is going to take me hours i'm not going to get done with this until you know, it's March. I might not be done with this until June. This is crazy. And were- and I think that Zelda. So like, if you look at Castlevania 2 is like this too, to a degree. But what's cool is like Zelda and Final Fantasy 1 were the first kinds of games that I remember being introduced to where it's like you can try to play this differently. And there's an entire that's the first time I realized in the 90s when I was a kid that there's like a subculture of people that play games differently than you're supposed to play them. And you had people playing like swordless quests of Zelda or like get as few heart pieces as possible or do it all on base armor. And Castlevania two had that too. Cause there's a lot of things in Castlevania two. You don't really need to get like the, the better daggers the you don't need to have the better whips. You don't need to do anything. You just make your character stronger. Cause that's, what's fun. But it's it's like Final Fantasy one with the all white mage party and stuff. It's I love that people do that kind of shit. And Zelda really, really extracted a lot of that kind of stuff. If you go to GameFAQs to this day, I'm sure because it was like that when I was there many years ago. If you go there to this day, I'm sure that a lot of the guides after like the fact walkthroughs for the regular game are all the different bizarre shit that they want you to try to do. Like do this, like the tunicless fucking run or whatever the hell it is. I noticed uh, two day. And I was counting before. I'll give you Tetris as a Nintendo published game, even though, and because it, it is, even though it's not what I mean, really. You only have two Nintendo games on your list. Yeah. I have six 
And I really consider one of your games not a Nintendo game in Tetris. Yeah. That's so I, I, three point. games that I put on my list that you didn't were, and I'd be, we can talk about these all together. Otherwise, we'll be here all fucking day. But Kid Icarus, Metroid, and Punch-Out, I feel oh. like are pretty essential games. I'm curious what you think about their exclusion from your own list and the inclusion on my list. And starting with Kid Icarus, I just think it's what a, I just it's an iconic game to me. Metroid, another iconic game and punch out is maybe the most unique game actually on the, the platform when you really think about it so yeah what are your thoughts on those nintendo published products and why they're missing from your list and what they what do you think they're if you think they belong on mine punch out is still one of the most impressive games for me just the size of the sprite and sprites and just how fun it is to play man it was very impressive in in every aspect you know, and also as a unique experience, there was nothing like that on the NES. Like Punch Out was really a game changer. Definitely in my top 20. Definitely one of those games I still love to go back and play. One of those rare games that I spent a lot of time with that I never beat. I can never beat Tyson. I just could never do it. I could get to Tyson pretty easily eventually after playing this game at length, but I could never beat him. And really special to me. And definitely I could see this squeaking into the top 10. For sure. I mean, this is an important game. And, you know, Super Punch-Out, that would come later, and later whatever we got on the Wii, which I never played. That's a backlog game. But very influential, you know, just and just so fun. And I think one of those games that opened up the NES to people that, some people that we grew up with, whether it was uncles or even specific, or dads or specific kids, that opened up a little bit of video gaming for people that might not have otherwise been interested. You know what I mean? Like, oh, a punching game. And then now, now, you know, with uh, Tyson's name on the marquee, definitely sort of an early Madden EA sports type thing where it was like, definitely. everybody's got to get a lick at this type of thing where you might not go in for the Mario, you might not go in for the ninjas and the robots and stuff, but you're going to be there for the boxing. So that, and it's something that's relatively easy. You know, not simple, but easy to easy to play, not easy to master, which was kind of cool. Metroid was probably the first of what I was saying, a game that was going to involve time investment, exploration, and sort of the antithesis of everything we knew kids my age growing up in the arcade where it wasn't this quarter munching adventure action game. It was an adventure. It was a quest you had to go on. And how the game, that was, Metroid followed closely, probably within months of Kid Icarus, was my introduction to a game that didn't hold your hand. You know what I mean? It was like, you have to figure this out. Where do I go? I don't know. What? How did I miss a clue? Maybe it's in the instruction booklet. I mean, this is how antiquated this is now. You know, I something that should do. Star, Star Tropics had something in the instruction booklet that you needed yeah. right. in order That's to beat right. the game, which is hysterical. That's absolutely right. Yeah, sometimes it was integral, or at least in making it easier. If not, that was impossible. an anti-rental measure. I think. <laughs> yeah, smart dude. How smart is that? I freaking love that. But yeah, Metroid and Kid Icarus in the same breath, like games that Kid Icarus was a little more linear, except you did have the dungeon segments, but. Metroid especially was a game that was just like it had that it had those arcadey sort of aspects to it 
run, jump, fire, avoid the enemies, a couple of boss fights, that sort of thing. But with the platforming was coming and figuring out things and, and learning how to gain abilities and figure out clues in order to open up the world in order to progress, you know, which was new. That was really new. We didn't know how to do that yet. You know what I mean? It was very plug and play up to that point. Kid Icarus was the same thing. What was interesting about Kid Icarus is that it was linear except for the dungeons. You know what I mean? It had a little bit of that difficult action platformy thing with very unique mechanics. So good. And physics. <laughs> oh, I just love the, the music. Yeah. And Dar- like something, something off-putting, not disturbing, but something um, compelling about the tone of that game. It wasn't super lighthearted and cartoony. There was something, it felt, you know, you felt that dire need, like you were on a quest and it was dangerous. You know, and even if the enemies are cute, it's uh, it's fraught with peril. You know, that was like an experience of like, wow, this game feels like I'm being immersed in a world. It felt more like watching a PG movie rather than reading a Garfield comic strip. You know, it really had that same kind of tone to it, which was kind of cool. It kind of reminded me of the anime stuff I was already familiar with. You know what I mean? With, you know, whether it was Voltron or Gotcha Man, it kind of felt like the video game equivalent of those early anime that we had in North America. Metroid 2. And the, the cool thing about Metroid is you saw aspects of alien and aliens in it you saw aspects of sci-fi you, you had the bounty hunter thing so there were some loose tie-ins to what we knew from star wars the original trilogy at that time so it was really an anime you know so it was really kind of this neat japanese flavor if you were a sophisticated kid like me at 13 or 14 that you were like oh i understand this is made in japan like like the the comic books and the and the animation i like you know what i mean it has that same even if it was just a little illustration that was a holdover from Japan in the instruction book, you're like, oh, I, this has this has that flavor that I like of you know being made in Japan for an early thing because we didn't know OAVs yet and all that kind of thing. You know, we, I was at that point, I was my radar was open for anything that seemed like it was anime related, you know, or Japanese animation related. So that was the thing with, yeah, I, I always think about Metroid and Kid Icarus in the same breath, not because they were developed by the same team and have a very similar flavor, but because they, those were the big games, you know, that were, that you really had to invest time in and you really had to commit to, you know what I mean? It would be on this, um, again, this kind of fleeting, let me sit down with this for 10 minutes. These required more of you. And that was new. That was a new thing. Dude, I could play Kid Icarus like uh, I was like at an expert level when I was like six or seven years old. And I can fucking barely get through like the second or third world at this point, probably. <laughs> I don't which know. So, I think which is so stuff short, which is so crazy. I, I think Kid Icarus is so that was a seminal game for me as a kid. I lo- I absolutely love that game. And I just think that that's such a it's such a strange because you said with, with the same thing with Metroid. They both got sequels on Game Boy. And after that one kind of went away forever. Like it, it, there was a Kid Icarus obviously came back on what? 3DS pits, obviously in smash, which right. is cool, but it's so strange to me that people didn't take to it more that it didn't stick around for a longer period of time. Cause it's a very unique IP that is the first of not the first, cause I'm sure there are games that did it before, but 
one of and a prominent member of many games mining that era of the gods and the monsters and shit like that. And that's a that's a huge thing to this day. God of War is the same yeah, the same, same idea. Thing. And then Metroid. Yeah, Metroid. I just love I love the original Metroid. I think it's just a very eerie and weird game. Like you really have no idea what to do. You, you really have no. And I love the whole thing of backtracking immediately to teach you that you should go backwards. Like there's this very cool things in the game that have to teach you and reteach you how to how to get through. And for people that saw it through, I think they were probably surprised by how deep it was. And of course, Samus being a chick is cool, too. But oh, that was the my, my mind was blown when I found that out. I was like, oh, my God, it's Boba Fett, but it's a girl. Like, what is happening? It's just like, I think that those type of things, those things that seemingly little things just made us fans for life. Because, again, they were the things that they didn't really have to do. They already had our money. You know, those thoughtful little touches that just, and maybe that was my age because I was 14, 15. I was old enough to recognize that, you know, especially in being very in tune with that world of video games animation and all that kind of thing. And I think you've said this before on another show, Colin, it's a great point. Like just having a game where you went left was not normal. You know what I mean? It was like, I could go that way. It wasn't okay. Level one start and then progress on the level and maybe get to the boss after you spent two fifty, and maybe you get to the second boss after you spent $6. Right. Cause it was like, I could go left. What? Cause think, when think about it, like fundamentally, let me think Castlevania one and Mega Man two and three for sure. Like there's no stage where you go left at the beginning, it courts you to go up or down and left and right and all of that by its design, but it never assumes you're going to go left to, at the beginning. So that was something you even well after Metroid in games that are much more linear, people had to kind of be instructed because you're kind of reading things left to right. It's, it's kind of natural. The idea that you live in and exist in a static digital world doesn't really make any sense through that that particular time frame, which is cool. So yeah, they had to teach you immediately and they did. And that's, that's the brilliance of these old games and why I, I'm so sad that there's, there's a growing, I mean, it makes sense. I guess it's probably the way people feel about old films. It's probably the way I feel about old films, but where people become more and more dismissive of this stuff. And I'm like, it, I think it becomes even better with age in some sense. It does because you recognize the brilliance. Like they were just blowing the doors off conventions back then. Like it's, it was a convention to go right in video games. And they were like, well, what if we go that way? I'm not saying it had never been done, but it had never been done to a degree where it was just what Nintendo and all these developers and publishers were inventing at the time and the way they were evolving video games from what it had been at home and in the arcade was insane. Like they were, they were raising the bar at such, to such a level, at such a speed, that it's almost mind-blowing. It would form everything we would know now in this Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5 era and Steam and everything you get on Valve and your fancy computers if you play on PC. But this is, this is kind of where... It started, you know what I mean? I mean, it started with the arcade, started with the early home consoles, but that was all but dead before Nintendo came into this space. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're Truly. so important, dude. And, and, and just the fact, like the way this comes full circle after the year they had in 2023, especially after being counted for dead, maybe only five to 10 years prior to that. It's insane. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty insane. And I know they could be maddening and I know they could they could be so aggravating and they're, they're so interesting because 
they they really can be prickly. You know that like they're the ultimate company that presents as warm and fuzzy, but they always have the fans at you know at 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 a distance. You know what I mean? They're interested. That's what help. That's really also what makes them interesting. You know what I mean? They're they're unlike no other company. But when you just look at in terms of legacy, decades and decades now, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Well, this was a fun exercise to try to at least cobble together some cogent top 10 lists uh, for the audience. Hope you enjoyed. Enjoyed. Anything else you want to say in parting before we go? You know, I've just been thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm into collecting retro games and my, my fandom with collecting, not with being a fan of the games, but with collecting specifically has slowed down over the last few years. But I always think, because I, I always have one ear, I have the glass to the wall of the retro gaming collecting community and YouTube and all that kind of thing. When we started Knockback years ago, it was sort of already, I felt like retro game collecting was already slowing down or maybe plateauing. And over the time since we started Knockback and have done all the other podcasts, I kind of half thought at times that maybe it's slowing down. You know, it's sort of ebbing a little bit. But I think if you tune in over the last year or so, Retro game collecting in the retro game video game community is maybe as big as it ever was. You know, maybe it kind of, it's cyclical and it peaks and valleys, but I think it's pretty big again. So I think this is a timely conversation because I always think of like, when is the bubble going to burst? Like with anything, it's like, okay, I know what I paid for these games. Some of the games in my collection, I know what I paid. I know what they are now. Some of them would surprise you. Some of them sort of peaked when I bought them. It depends. But I think with any hobby, it's like, okay, when is this going to hit its peak and then just slowly come down? I think in terms of a roller coaster. But I think it's actually bigger than ever, which is pretty crazy because it's been a couple of decades since this has been, since retro game collecting has been a thing. Yeah, I think Nintendo's new prominence, like renewed, prominence and vigor i think just brings in more and more people i think also it can't be ignored that the infusion of the infusion of money from the government during covid influenced the spiking of prices in all collectibles that's like pretty much a known thing at this point you see it in toys you see it in everything it happened because people had extra money and kind of reset where toys might otherwise have plateaued in value and so the same thing happened in games, and that's just one of many factors, but that's an important thing to note of why I think games got so expensive. But the market, the price indicates that there's great competition for these products. So yeah, it does seem to me to be bigger than ever from my outside perspective too. And it stresses me out. I'm so glad that I don't collect things that are going to become more and more scarce. Like G.I. Joe's, I guess, are, are the major thing, but it's just, it's so stressful to think that really, I mean, maybe this isn't true, but at least in the short to midterm, like the longer you wait, the more expensive your collection is going to become to get until this plateaus. Maybe people die and don't care about the shit anymore. And then maybe it goes away. But unless the bottom really falls out. Yeah, but it's like, how can that even happen? Like, I, I would have thought that the digital like virtual console and Nintendo online or whatever, these things haven't injured the availability of the games to play have not injured the collector's market, which indicates to me that people aren't even collecting them to play them anyway. They're collecting them to have them because why would you collect them to play them necessarily when you can just really emulate any of them? So it's very interesting. Hopefully people enjoyed our two lists. Very different 
lists. I have them written down here in my paper. They are very different. I think I'm yeah. going to get a little bit. I'm going to get a little heat for the Super Mario Three thing. I'm still like laying on the therapist couch trying to figure that one out myself. Well, all good, my friend. That's good. My, that's, that's my one thing. I mean, to each other. I think about you saying that all the time about like if you have the money for something, buy it now because it's only going to go up in price in all likelihood. I think about you saying that constantly, like weekly. And I don't know where you heard that from, but you're always in my head with that, like, oh, should I? In, in other words, if I want a new coffee table, especially with the rate of inflation. Yeah, inflation, right? like, I don't know if you saw the thing about, I mean, this is obvious, but I think people needed to be told this is like, prices aren't going to go back down ever. Like, this is the new normal. So now it's just about how, like, eroding the the increase right. so it doesn't get any worse. And that's the true bummer. That's that's why I felt about my when I bought my solar panels on my house. It's like this is expensive, but it's not going to get any cheaper. And right. power is going to get more expensive and all that. And I was like, fuck it, let's just do it and pull the trigger now. And I'm glad because like we don't pay, we don't have an electric bill basically anymore, you know. But um, but yeah, you have to like it would have become much more, you know, precarious for me uh, with finance if I if I waited. So yeah, I, I don't want to give anyone financial advice, but that seems to be generally good advice for collectibles and things of this nature. Sometimes things get much cheaper, but you have to wait a long time. Like the like TVs are almost disposably cheap at this point, which is funny because they used to be so expensive. So things change. Yeah. Uh, um, all right, Dave, let's get the hell out of here. Do you have a dad joke before we go? I do. I do indeed. I don't think we've done this one before. Got my dad joke cards. I got to say, two we, we we did Jaws two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The, the weeks are going by fast. They are. They, they are really are. Yeah, like the doing a bi-weekly by. show, it still feels like the time's flying by. So, all right, my friend, Kyle, why did the pirate walk the plank? I don't know. He didn't have a dog. Oh, so s- <laughs> I like that one. That's a dumb one. That's a dumb one. All right, fine. Put that back in the box. We, we, get that. we got the dad jokes. I always show you guys the dad jokes. That's yeah, that's the, great. That's yeah, what that's I'm using. Some, the very Shout best or worst dad jokes. This is. Table fun. New Table York fun. and London. They're doing all right. London, England. London. <laughs> all right. Dude, that's another Austin Powers reference. Dagan, thank you for being here today. Appreciate you. Hope you have a good rest of your day, rest of your week. You too. Good seeing you. Yeah, good to see you as well. And good to see all of you out there. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support of all things Last Day Media, Knockback, etc. You know the drill. Patreon.com slash Last Day Media for early ad-free access and merch at lastdaymedia.store. We'll see you next time. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. William Holbert, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, SLVFMA, Daniel D'Amore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Iroquois Pliskin, Logan Little George, Vincent Valenzuela, Landon Pipkin, Kyle Johnson, Daniel Beresford, Brian Williamson, Jorge Padua, Vance Cody, Rallo, Mr. Ayub, Casey Raymond, Denny Sniper Teeth, Extian, Magic Marker 215, Ross R. Lowe, Kevin Hawley, Austin Lipka, Paul Warren, Harold Eustache, Will 
Bill Williams, Nicholas Renaud, Shane Breck, Sean Llewellyn, Michael Mash Potato, Sweaty Magic, Nate Izod, Harkeet Johnny, Ellis, Albion, Josh Sullinger, Jacob Donovan, Dark Archer SC, My Name is Mayo, Jason R. Zahn, Sean Hatfield, Christopher Knock, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Sorta Serious Gaming, Mark Arnold, Whiskey Sin, Zia Parrix, Sean Miles, Relentless Rex, Alan Tiniak, Dustin Klingman, Christian R., Jad Rita, Jacob Hancock, Luke Aldersley, Dustin Graff, Zach Cohen, Peyton Stone, Fozzie Bear, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parades, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Holsey, Dio or Die, T Bone. 007, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Zuza, Betty Ann Moriarty, Travis, Ross Chandler, Htrons, Antonio C, Alan Einer, Jay Getter, Bjorn Campbell, Theo, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zyle, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Mr. Moth, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Carl Wallace, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Matt Flowers, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Kendrick Caius, Jimmy Rodriguez, Rockin' Ace, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Adam Hall, Mason Bichard, Ollie Fritz, Anthony Marola, John W. Torres, Saqib Alam, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Toby Ryland, Stewie 108, Andy Miller, Patrick Montgomery, Richter 86, Derek Wechter, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Joel Holcomb, Aaron Betk, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Logan Sharp, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chand, Organic Produce, Carlos Algaret, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Joosh, Martin Beck, Gavin, Jerome Ferreira, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lewin Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, John Schultz, Tom Quinn, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Ryan T. Mandel, Porkin Beans, Jean-Francois Forzi, Tony Zuniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Corey Dustin, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Bo, Jorge Pal, Cannonball Jones, Tomas Sablin, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Scott Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondoliger, Alex Mones, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, Austin Riley, Paul Joyce, Alan Hopkins, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Don Lee, John Cordero, Ashley Carlson, Kyle Martin, Madmock Media, Bowl Burkholtz, and Jonathan Rice.